Good morning. Please be seated. In the case of Her Majesty the Queen in Right of Canada against uh, Cheyenne Sharma, for the appellant, Her Majesty the Queen, Jennifer Conroy and Janet Jevikoglu, for the intervener, Attorney General of Saskatchewan, Noah Vernikovsky, for the intervener, Attorney General of British Columbia, Micah B. Rankin, for the respondent Cheyenne Sharma, Nader R. Hassan, and Stephen Elward, for the intervener Aboriginal Legal Services Inc., Jonathan Rudin, for the intervener Legal Services Board of Nunavut, Eva Tashe Green, for the intervener Criminal Lawyers Association Ontario, Promise Holmes Skinner, and Andrew. For the intervenant, Association Québécoise des Avocats et Avocates de la Défense, Maître Maxime Raymond, Maître Emmanuel Arcan. For the intervener, Criminal Trial Lawyers Association, Catherine Quinlan. For the intervener, Canadian Bar Association, Chantelle Van Wiltenberg and Eric V. Gotardi QC. For the intervener, Federation of Sovereign. Indigenous Nations, Eleanor Sunchild QC and Michael Seed. For the intervener, British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, Vincent La Rochelle. For the intervener, Queen's Prison Law Clinic, Chris Rudnicki and Teresa Doncor. For the intervener, HIV and AIDS Legal Clinic Ontario and HIV Legal Network, Robin Nobleman and Ryan Peck. For the intervener, Alisa Lombard. For intervener, Women's Legal Education and Action Fund, Inc., Alisa Lombard and Aubrey Charette. For the intervener, Canadian, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Michelle M. Bidolf and David M. Humphrey. For the intervener, Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, Carly Fox. For the intervener, Native Women's Association of Canada, Laura Ezuka, for the intervener, Ontario Native Women's Association, Alana Robert and Connor Bilfell, for the intervener, David Asper Center for Constitutional Rights, Jessica Orkin, Adriel Weaver, for the intervener, Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies, Emily Temen, for the intervener, John Howard Society of Canada, Emily Young and Andrew Max. Ms. Conroy. Good morning, Chief Justice and Justices. In this case, a very sympathetic offender committed a very serious crime. Nothing about the facts in this case are in dispute. It is not in dispute that the respondent has lived a life of extraordinary hardship, nor that the legacies of colonialism have had devastating effects on Indigenous communities, 
leading to overrepresentation in the criminal justice system at every stage. It is also not in dispute that the respondent imported nearly two kilograms of cocaine, nor that cocaine is a pernicious substance that destroys lives and communities and leads inexorably to extraordinary human suffering. What is in dispute? The reason that we are here is to answer a legal question. Having created the conditional sentence as an alternative to incarceration in 1996, did Parliament have the constitutional authority to later restrict the general availability of those sentences for serious crimes? In arguing that it does, we are asking this court to reach into its arsenal of already decided cases and established principles to overturn the decision of the majority in the court below. We have three main points. One, the restrictions on conditional sentences do not infringe Section 15. The majority in the court below collapsed the two stages of inquiry under Section 15 into a single inquiry into historic disadvantage that is unworkable as a constitutional standard in criminal law. Two, the restrictions on conditional sentences do not infringe Section 7. The majority in the court below incorrectly found that a maximum sentence of 14 years or life is not an appropriate marker of seriousness. The impact of the restrictions is rationally connected to their purpose. They are neither overbroad nor are they arbitrary. Three, if this court disagrees and finds that the restrictions are constitutionally suspect, those concerns can be alleviated at section one. In 1996, Parliament rewrote the law on sentencing in Canada. After decades of sentencing research and review and several failed attempts at a bill, Parliament enacted Part 23 of the Criminal Code, which was described by this court as a watershed in criminal law and sentencing. This important reform codified principles of sentencing that had not previously been codified, such as denunciation and deterrence, and importantly, the principle of restraint in section 718.2e. The principle of restraint calls on trial judges to pay particular attention to the circumstances of indigenous offenders at sentencing and tells trial judges to use incarceration as a last resort for all offenders. As part of this reform, the government also expanded the availability of fines, authorized diversion for adult offenders, and created the conditional sentence as a meaningful alternative to incarceration for less serious offenses. As the years went by, Parliament placed greater limitations on the availability of conditional sentences, culminating in 2012 with the introduction of the State Safe Streets and Communities Act, which restricted the availability of conditional sentence, sentences for certain categories of serious offenses, including those punishable by life in prison.
virtually all legislation makes categories and distinguishes. This court has told us that not all distinctions are discriminatory. The criminal law in particular is about distinguishing conduct that is morally acceptable to society and conduct that is not. The criminal code provides what the punishment will be for trans transgressions of these social conduct rules. Within the realm of punishment, Parliament has prescribed many options, but they are not all available for every crime. Can I, can, the, Ms. Conroy, can I stop you right there? Because you've, been, you've used the word availability about six times, and I hate to say that I see where you're headed. <laughs> uh, 718.2e indeed starts with all available sanctions. But I just wondered why in your argument you insist on the word availability and you don't look over at the French text. Have you looked at the French text? Which says, les sanctions substitutes. Substitutive penalties. An allusion to sanctions which are a substitute for imprisonment. And this notion of availability that you insist upon, and indeed is at the center of your argument uh, in, the, in your outline, I was surprised that the Queen and Right of Canada didn't allude to the French text. I, I apologize for the oversight. Uh, you're right, the, the federal crown should be uh, should be looking at certainly uh, both both versions uh, of the statute. I think the 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 availability point um, perhaps doesn't hinge so much on the word uh, uh, availability and is the is is the concept that when Parliament is setting parameters for punishment, that it's Parliament that gets to decide for what crimes each punishment will be an option. And so in section 718.2e, uh, when, the, when the parliament is telling trial judges, look, when you have someone in front of you, don't just jump to prison. You need to look at all these other available options in English or substitutes to use the French language that uh, uh, Justice Cassie that you've given us. The, they are substitutes. They are substitute options. But in in our respectful submission, the 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 rationale for what was behind Parliament and what the the mandate of Gladue requires doesn't turn on that one word. That, that's a fair point, and and I didn't mean to be. I wasn't trying to catch you out. So that's a good <laughs> answer. I just I just was surprised because you do insist you do put available in italics in your argument right the way through and I was just a little surprised so I'm glad to have your answer thank you I'm happy for it to be pointed out and and I, I assure you that my uh, French counterparts are cr cringing that we did not put in the bilingual bilingual version of the statute so I appreciate your your question justice Cassivaire the jumping let's Let's jump right into the test for section 15 and, and let me talk about what we say is the problem with the majority decision below. 
So this court has established a two-part test for Section 15. One, does the law on its face or in its impact create a distinction based on an, an enumerated or analogous ground? And two, does it impose a burden or deny a benefit in a manner that has the effect of reinforcing, perpetuating, or exacerbating a disadvantage? We say the majority made mistakes at both stages of the test. I'm going to submit to you what we say were the two errors that they made at stage one and then move on to stage two. I recognize that I think this court uh, will likely be most interested in the discussion that comes at stage two, but I think from a jurisprudential perspective, it's important to make the points with respect to stage one and what we say they did wrong. We say at but stage may one. May I just intervene here and ask you? you, you you're yes. uh, dealing with the application of our existing jurisprudence. You're not asking us to change that jurisprudence. We are not. Thank you. What we say is the mistake of the majority at stage one of the Section 15 test is one, that they failed to consider the temporal context within which the legislation exists, and two, that there should be some evidentiary burden on the claimant at stage one. With respect to the context of the legislation, in this court's decision in Alliance, Justice Sabella held that the focus of the analysis has to be on the provisions themselves. She wrote, assessed on their own and regardless of the prior legislative scheme. Because otherwise, comparing a prior version of the scheme with a current version of the scheme would be to constitutionalize the policy choice embodied in the first version of the act. In this case, if one looks at the legislation as it currently stands on its own, regardless of the prior legislative scheme, it cannot be said to create a distinction on the basis of race. The only distinction drawn in the legislation is between those who commit serious offenses punishable by 14 years or life in prison and those who don't. The only route to finding a distinction comes with a temporal comparison between what it looked like in 1996 when Parliament first enacted the legislation and what it looks like now. And that's, that's something that Justice Abella said in Alliance was not appropriate, that it would constitutionalize the policy choice embodied in the first version of the act. We say that's what the Court of Appeal has done. What if the conditional sentence regime was enacted in 1996 as it's, with these limits in place? What would the distinction on Section 15 be if that were the case? This court in Prue wrote, when looking at the conditional sentence provision, that Parliament could have easily excluded specific offenses from the ambit of Section 742.1, but chose not to do so. If it was okay for them to include these things at that time, how can it be constitutionally precluded from doing so later? With the benefit of experience now in how the provisions were being interpreted, if the only distinction can be drawn, that can be drawn is on temporal lines, then is this not exactly what Justice Sabella said was not okay in Alias? 
But let, let me just ask you this question here, uh, accepting that, that that is the law. Why is this different than what a court does every time they deal with a charter issue and, and question whether there's been an infringement? Is they look at the actual law that's being challenged. Um, and here it would seem to me that a different characterization is possible from your friends opposite, which is that they look at these two individual provisions, C and E2, and say, just look at them. That's what we're looking at, is only those provisions, and we draw from that that there is a distinction, not on its face, but in adverse effects. So it's not constitutionalizing any prior option that Parliament chose to, to make a different uh, legislative regime, but when we look at what is in place, we always attack what is in place uh, uh, in terms of a, a legal analysis, and they're just saying it's an adverse effects uh, discrimination case. Uh, you may say you haven't made it out, but it, isn't it no more or less than that? I, I think, Justice Martin, that what our friends are saying is, you know, once Parliament enacted this thing, we, I think we can all agree Parliament was under no constitutional obligation to enact a conditional sentence in 1996. It was a creative solution that they came up with. What my friends are saying is once they did that, once they enacted it with a, with, with a particular set of restrictions, then adding more restrictions is discriminatory. That, that's their argument, that in 2012, when Parliament came in and said, you know what, we don't think this is working. There's people that are getting conditional sentences that we never meant to get conditional sentences. We do not want people who commit serious offenders or who are dangerous getting conditional sentences. So we're going to amend the legislation and we're going to add restrictions. And what our friends are saying, what my friends on the other side are saying is that decision, it's that decision that's being impugned to add those restrictions. And so I don't think they are looking at the, the legislation as it stands. There's certainly, because as it stands, the legislation draws this distinction based on the seriousness of offense. There's certainly no allegation, and nor should there be, in the absence of, a, of, a, of an evidentiary record, that the uh, targeted group is committing a disproportionate number of those offenses. Right? Like the, the distinction, the lawn, line drawing here is according to level of offense. And, and perhaps it's overbroad, and that's, a, that's a, an issue for us under Section 7. But under Section 15, where we're looking at is it making a, a distinction, is it drawing a, a distinction on the basis of an enumerated ground, it's hard to see that when you just look at the legislation. But accepting that it does, um, you know, we will address what we say won't went, went happen at, at, at part two, but before I get to part two, there, I, I think it's worth discussing the evidentiary burden. Because in the early days of Section 15 jurisprudence in this case, it was always said to be that the claimant has a burden under, section, under the first step of the test. And in, in Whiffler, this court said that the claimant will have more work to do at the first step when it's an adverse effect. You know, while finding that it was not necessary to necessarily call this evidence in Fraser, Justice Sabella still wrote that it might be helpful, particularly statistics in particular, she wrote, might be helpful in cases where you have a provision that doesn't just affect the, the, uh, the, the identified group, but infects a, a broader range of people, which this one clearly does. 
And in Fraser, Justice Abella said, you know, the types of evidence that would be especially helpful to show this impact would be evidence about the situation of the claimant group, which is clearly not necessary in this case. There's both an abundance of evidence to support uh, the, the, the fact that Indigenous uh, people are overrepresented in the criminal justice system, that this is a product of colonialism and systemic discrimination. It, we don't even need the evidence in the record to say that because those facts are so notorious. The, the, the overrepresentation of Indigenous people in the criminal justice system is, is a crisis. So you don't even need the record to support that to, for number one. But number two, the other thing that Justice Abella writes about in Fraser is that you need evidence about the results of the law. And, and here, in this particular case, the, the respondent brought an application and filed a voluminous record before the trial judge. And, and as I just said, that record definitely supports the finding that there is systemic discrimination, that there's overrepresentation. But does it support the finding that this particular provision, A, had a beneficial impact, or B, that restrictions placed on the, uh, on the provision caused discrimination, had are, an adverse are, are we at Are we at stage one or stage two of the analysis right now? Stage one. Okay, because it was sounding a lot like stage two. Um, right, when you talked so, about ca causing a, I can't remember the, the exact words you used, but, but you know, stage one, we're talking about whether there is a distinction created by legislation. And then that's right. stage two is um, w whether this reinforced, perpetuated, exacerbated disadvantage, which I think is, is, is more uh, connoting of a causal analysis. I mean, legislation doesn't really cause a distinction. It creates a distinction. Um, but I just want to signal to you that I'm struggling about and I have been struggling as I've been preparing for this appeal. Um, mm -hmm. If causation is still a thing, um, yeah. then where is it a thing in the analysis? So, <clears throat> Justice Brown, I, I, you know, this is struggling with the application of um, Section 15 uh, on the facts of this case, I think is, is universal. And I think the Court of Appeal struggled with it as well. There's a dissent. Um, you know, we say, and the way that we pleaded it in our factum, is that this issue of causation arises at the first step because the distinct, it does, there's no, in our, in our submission, there's no obvious uh, line, line, line drawing in terms of the adverse effect, like the actual well, distinction. But, but think about Quebec and A, right? If the state, yep. if, if the court says in Quebec and A, if the state conduct widens the gap, dot, 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 then it's discriminatory. That's, that's, that's stage two, is it not? Right. I mean, that's a, the, that, that was causation as, it, as the court understood it way back in Quebec and A. So I think I think it, in answer to your question, if if the court, the, the, I think the only point that we're making on causation, and and I, I think if we want to say, look, you know, we're satisfied. What the court of appeal did was said we're satisfied that the fact that this offender is indigenous, and 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 we think she should have gotten a conditional sentence. This provision precludes her from getting one. And, and since Indigenous uh, offenders are overrepresented in the criminal justice system, 
we're satisfied that, that, that that's enough of a distinction to get through the low, the low burden of stage one. And if that's the case, and we want to look at causation right. in stage two, then I think that our only point on causation here is that in this case, in Eldridge, there was a deaf claimant who could not access health care for the hearing abled. And so there was clearly a distinction. And Breend, the human rights statute, excluded sexual orientation as a protected ground. And the person before the court was homosexual and wanted to raise a claim and was precluded from doing so. There's an obvious connection or nexus between the uh, distinction drawn in the the adverse effect created by the legislation and the enumerated group and here where there isn't one we say that causation is required and if that causation is required at the second step then our then 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 we can consider it at the second step but the, the question here is that the, all of the st statistics that she led that the respondent led in this case did not show that there was a uh, that, that this legislation caused an impact it for indigenous offenders there was there was yeah I, I understand I understand your point about that it's just that uh, I'm, I'm going yeah. to but just, I'm going to make a, a simple logical point and uh, because uh, unlike some people I prefer simplicity not complexity I'm I'm made uncertain by complexity because I find it often obscures logical uh, error and a lack of analytical rigor, but to make my point, you can have causation as an element in step one and step two, one possibility. You can have it in step one, but not in step two. You can have it in not in step one, but in step two, or you can have it at neither step. So the fact that it may appear in both one and two need not be a problem. I mean, it's, it's not like, well, which, which is it? And the answer is, logically, it could be both. Albeit, one would think that as step one and step two address somewhat different questions or different aspects of the analysis, the, the causation would serve for a different purpose, to demonstrate a different element. So I'm... This, this necessary dichotomy, oh, is it in one or is it in two, I think that's like a, it's just like a basic logical error. Can I, oh, we'll go ahead and answer it, and then I will pose my question. Thank you, Justice Karakatsanis. Justice Rowe, in answer to, to, to your, um, to your uh, question, I, I mean, I think that's right. I think, I think in the, the complexity of causation in this case, um, and and one of the problems we say with this case is that in this case the distinction at stage one was the fact that there was sort of systemic discrimination in the criminal justice system and overrepresentation of indigenous uh, people in general and. And so the the issue that where causation comes into it at stage one is, is that enough? Is that a sufficient basis to say that a distinction has been made? Uh, you know, historical, it, it's, it feels as though historical disadvantage is being used at both stages of the test. But I agree that causation does also come into it at stage two. Uh, because one of the things that that is argued is that the 
the um, you know the the whole art this whole argument is premised on the fact that conditional sentences alleviate um, systemic discrimination by providing an alternative to incarceration for Indigenous offenders in particular. And the, the problem with that is that on the respondents' evidence that they put before the court, that was not actually the case. The, the, the over-representation of Indigenous uh, people in the criminal justice system since 1980 has been going on a straight increased line. And when you look at the study that my friends rely on, the Andrew Reid study, what that study talks about is, look, when this, when the conditional sentencing provision came in in 1996, when you look at the, the usage of the conditional sentence as between uh, Indigenous and non-Indigenous offenders, between 1996 and 2001, it was most, it was, there was more non-Indigenous offenders getting conditional sentences than Indigenous offenders. And then in 2001, it switches. But then in 2008, it switches back again. And again, it's Indigenous, non-Indigenous offenders getting more conditional sentences. And then by the end of the study period, he looks at 2014, 2015, it's about the same. And so our only point on this is that when the, when the uh, adverse effect, the, the distinction that the legislation is said to create is not obvious on its face, uh, even in adverse effects discrimination cases, there are cases where the, 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 the distinction is, is more obvious. You know, in the pension benefit scheme where the woman is working part-time to look after her children and she can't claim the, the same benefits, but somebody who's on leave without pay isn't working at all can't. I mean, that, that's obvious, but here it's not so obvious where we're talking about a criminal, a, a, a standard for, for this provision as being the maximum sentence of the offense. So my and question... So, yeah, sorry, Justice Garrett. No, finish, I'm just waiting. Oh, no, I'm finished, please. <laughs> okay, you well, I, my question is actually to ask you of maybe um, why it isn't as obvious. Um, if we uh, accept, and I don't think there's any real dispute that there's indigenous uh, offenders are hugely overrepresented in prison for women up to 50%. Um, given the extent of that overrepresentation, is there, why would it not logically follow that a restriction for the availability of conditional sentence has a differential impact on Indigenous offenders, especially women? There's a risk of, given the extent of overpopulation in prison, why doesn't it follow that the risk is greater for Indigenous uh, uh, offenders? The risk of overpopulation is greater. I guess I'm coming back to what kind of evidence do you need? We've got judicial pronouncements that makes it, every, no one disputes that there's systemic discrimination in the justice system for Indigenous people. No one disputes that there is extensive over-representation of Indigenous offenders, include, in particular for women, why doesn't it logically follow that a restriction for a conditional sentence that allows them to avoid incarceration would have a differential impact on them? 
And if there is evidence to show that, I mean, your reference to between this year and that year and so on, if there's evidence to show that that logic doesn't hold, then why can't that be part of the Section 1 analysis that allows the government to, to, to bring that level of detailed expert testimony rather than the Indigenous offender before the court? So it does seem simpler to me I guess, and I'm, at, I'm giving you an opportunity to tell me why it is not logical. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Justice Karakathanis. I think the, the, that um, there's an overwhelming sense, you know, that that should be the case. That, that, you know, we know all the things that we know. We know Indigenous offenders are overrepresented. We know there's a crisis of incarceration. And so anything that limits the, you know, the, the availability of uh, a sentence that is not a, a, an, a, one of incarceration must then necessarily impact the group. And so to, and, and for us, this is getting smack dab into the stage two problem, because if you do accept that this legislation creates a distinction on the basis of race because, exactly as you've just said, Justice Karakasanis, because of the fact that, that, that it's going to, uh, by, by common sense alone, looking at it, if less people can get a conditional sentence, then more people are going to jail. If more Indigenous offenders are in jail, then that's going to create, if, if that's enough to, to find a distinction at stage one, then it gets us into stage two. And the problem at stage two is that the majority below did just completely decontextualized any analysis of Section 15. And what we say is there's a difference between... Well, my question was, sorry, my question was about stage yeah. one, which is supposed to be a low bar, which overwhelming sense of common sense, you know, strikes me as, a, as, as meeting a low bar. But that, was, that question was with respect to section, to the first question. So if there's an issue with question number two, then let's talk about that. But I guess I just wanted your answer on stage one. So our, our answer on stage one is that when, if you're, is that from a constitutional perspective, if we follow the dictates of this court, uh, that, that more is required at stage one than just pre-existing social disadvantage to find a distinction. And so uh, that's, that's our answer to that question. I recognize that that may not, uh, that, that, that it's probably time to move on to stage two uh, with that, that, but that's our answer. Our answer is, you know, doesn't there have to be more? And if the answer is from this court, no, there does not. There does not need to be more, that these circumstances are enough then we, then we move to stage two. And, and your question with respect to the government and you know, whether or not this provision even had any effect and why, and shouldn't that be in, in, in section one? Sorry, that's and not exactly what my question was, but I just said that the government is in a position to lead evidence on section one. Yes. I'm, I'm not suggesting. But, it, but it, let me ask you this, if we accept that that's enough for section one, why bother with section two or with stage two? Right, if we accept that, that, that um, the fact that a, a class of people, in this case indigenous persons, have a pre-existing disadvantage 
is an answer to the question as to whether the law creates a distinction. Um, and I realize that you resist that conclusion, but, but, yes. but if we were to accept that conclusion, you say then we move on to, to stage two, but I'm wondering what work is left to do at stage two, because um, you've already accepted that the disadvantage is a distinction and if in fact the disadvantage is a distinction, then wouldn't it follow that the law imposes a burden or denies a benefit in this case, which has the effect of reinforcing, perpetuating, or exacerbating that distinction? Wouldn't it follow automatically? Well, Justice Brown, I think the, the problem is, is that in section 15 at stage two, it is appropriate to consider the context within which the legislation exists. And so the, you know, the, 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 our, our friends have, have litigated this as there's a, a, a integral connection between the conditional sentence and the principle of restraint in 718.28. And, and we say that that is not the case, that, that what is mandated in order to give, a, give uh, an appropriate sentence to an Indigenous offender does not require this one tool being the conditional sentence. And, you know, there's a difference between what is um, the, a preferred sentence, what is even a proportionate sentence, and what is a constitutionally mandated sentence. And, and what the court below does in this case is they say this offender has to get a conditional sentence because nothing short of a conditional sentence would be constitutional for her. And, and the, our submission is that, that that constitutionalizes the conditional sentencing provision in, in a way that doesn't take into consideration the fact that when Parliament enacted this provision, there were, uh, when they're talking about crime and punishment, when we're talking about sentencing, there's a great number of other factors that have to be taken into consideration. It's very different. It's, you can't apply the, the jurisprudence from sort of the, the pension cases, for example, in a direct way to, to criminal law and sentencing. You know, punishment is not the, the it's not equivalent to a benefit, right? Benefits like pension schemes, access to health care, uh, education, they grant people singularly positive social or material benefits. But when we're talking about a sentencing provision, sentencing is not a singularly positive material benefit. It's, it's a balancing. It's a number of principles and countervailing interests. And, and, and you know, the, the cornerstone of this court's jurisprudence on sentencing is that it's an individualized process. Yeah, but doesn't it come down to, doesn't the position of the majority come down to this? Parliament, via Section 15 or Section 7, cannot legally interfere with the discretion of sentencing judges. And if Parliament encroaches upon that, the courts will strike it down and affirm their constitutional right to sentence as they see fit. 
Justice Rowe, that, that is exactly uh, what, the, what we say is the problem with this analysis. The, the, there, there are no bounds. The, the, the natural, um, the, the, the natural conclusion is that any time that Parliament passes or puts limits on judicial discretion in sentencing, that, that those limits on judicial discretion are basically equivalent to limits on Gladue, right? Like, so, so how does this not implicate mandatory minimum punishments, for example? Mandatory minimum punishments, unlike conditional sentences, actually require that people go to jail. Conditional, the restrictions on conditional sentences, although the majority said this, they're incorrect. They do not mean that people have to go to jail. There, there are other options available, if it, it, as long as they're fit in the circumstances, that would have an offender not go to jail just because a conditional sentence is not available. Mandatory minimums, however, say if you're convicted of this offense, then you must go to jail. And how, on, on the reasoning of the majority, how does that not call into question every single mandatory minimum that exists in the criminal code? Ms. Conroy, you've mentioned the majority's reasons, and I wonder um, whether um, Justice Fellman really went beyond common sense and pre-existing disadvantage, because in paragraph 70, we're talking about stage one here, she talks about the legislative history and jurisprudence demonstrating that conditional censuses take on unique significance in the context of Aboriginal offenders by conferring the added benefit uh, of rem remedying systemic over-incarceration. So she, she herself doesn't just say, well, it's a matter of common sense and pre-existing disadvantage. She roots it very much in the history and jurisprudence and this particular framework. On her analysis, isn't the distinction at stage one the uh, removal of the accommodation for all offenders, but in particular for Abor uh, Indigenous offenders, of uh, the conditional sentence. Isn't that the, the uh, distinction that's drawn? But if the removal at stage one is the removal of something that, that, that uh, you know, that for, for all offenders, um, then it, it gets us back into, into the same discussion with respect to, if I could just turn up the majority's decision, paragraph 70, to make sure that I'm speaking to the right question. <clears throat> the, the, thank you, Justice Jamal, I've now looked at the paragraph. I think, um, The, she, Justice Feldman in, the, in, in this paragraph does refer to the legislative history um, and the jurisprudence, uh, but in our respectful submission, the, the, in terms of the legislative history, the legislative history of the conditional sentencing provision is, is shows that it's, it's a provision that Parliament had a, a particular focus on when it was enacted in 1996, and that focus was that this was going to be enacted in order to to take uh, to to reduce incarceration for less serious offenses. The legislative history, and we've referred to it in our fact, and we have some pieces of the legislative history in our condensed book. The legislative history shows us that 
you know, the provincial institutions were full of people who couldn't pay fines. They were full of people who were serving five-day, 10-day, 15-day sentences for very minor offenses. And Parliament's concern was, look, our jails are getting too full. We need to send the people who really need to be in jail to jail. So let's find a way to get these minor offenses out of the system. And that was one of the driving forces for the conditional sentence. And then what happened? Conditional sentences started being handed down for more serious offenders. People started getting concerned about the fact that people who committed a sexual assault could get a conditional sentence. People who committed domestic violence could get a conditional sentence and end up back in the community or the home. These were, were concerns. And so Parliament changed the legislation in 2007 and limited it so that it could not apply to personal injury, serious personal injury offenses. And, and then what happened after that? There was litigation. What, what does it mean to be a personal a serious injury offense, a serious personal injury offense? What does that mean? This court decided a case on that very issue in Steele. And Parliament said, oh my goodness, there's so much uncertainty. There's, there's, there's a lack of clarity. There's a lack of consistency. What we really meant with this provision is people who commit the most serious offenses, which they used the maximum sentence as a marker of that seriousness, those people are not going to get a conditional sentence. That's the line drawing that they did. And whether that's good policy or bad policy, because it has, you know, perhaps resulted in, in you know, greater uh, incarceration, it was their policy decision to make. And is it constitutional? I think the important thing here is to go back to what does Section 15 protect? What is Section 15 protecting against? Is this a discriminatory law? Does it have a discriminatory effect? And by failing to take the context of sentencing into account, the majority effectively reduces the Section 15 analysis to a simple inquiry into whether or not a different sentence might have better addressed the claimant's historic disadvantage without an appreciation of the complex matrix considerations informing Parliament's line drawing. Now, the, the Ontario Court of Appeal in Morris recently said the sentencing judge's task is a specific and focused task. It's not the job, job of the sentencing judge to account for systemic discrimination in the criminal justice system. It is a crisis. Well, they, well they, they, do, they do have to account for it. I mean, as a matter of, of glad you, the question is whether they can solve it. Yes. So our submission uh, is it can't be solved. I think that's this court's submission as, uh, or opinion as well. Well, it can be solved, but probably not by a sentencing judge. It could be solved by, I mean, this is a complicated issue. But, but, but to yes. say it's insoluble is, I think, to throw our hands up in the air. And I, I think it behooves us all not to. Agreed. And, and, and Justice Brown, you raise a, an excellent point that reminds me, you know, when I was looking at the cases, when I was looking at what this court has said in Gladue and Epoly, if you go back and look at those cases, the court in Gladue, when, when, we, when the court was saying, like, listen, trial judges, you need to take this into, into consideration. This is what the principle of restraint means. It means you have to look at systemic and background factors. This goes to moral 
uh, culpability. But the court said, you know, in, in what what does that mean exactly? In in Gladue, the court talked about uh, in terms of alternatives to incarceration. In Gladue, the, the the court mentions the conditional sentence, yes, but also talks about um, the the availability of other of other options. You know, are there are there community based sanctions like sentencing circles? Can we get the community involved? The problem with conditional sentences too is you know we have to consider the fact that there there's a uh, you have to consider whether it's appropriate in the circumstances and um you know again from a constitutional perspective this court has said including in in Ipoli and Nassau-Galiwak that you know one principle of sentencing does not trump the other and if we find that the principle of restraint in this case requires one particular form of punishment, then doesn't that, you know, to, to, to go back to Justice Rowe's uh, question before, doesn't that, that mean um, that there's a lot of the distinctions that are drawn in criminal law that are going to be uh, constitutionally suspect? You know, we're, we're saying that, that, that this is, it's not just about whether a conditional sentence may have been a fit sentence for Ms. Sharma. We're saying she had to have a conditional sentence in order to give effect to Gladue. Otherwise, it's discriminatory. And, and, and Gladue doesn't say that, and Ipoli doesn't say that. This court talks about a variety of different, of, of giving effect to that. And there's a difference too, we submit, between the moral blameworthiness of the offender before the court and the objective seriousness of the offense. These are objectively serious offenses. Ms. Conroy, about the uh, seriousness of the offense, I would like to uh, get your views about the overbreadth argument of Ms. Sharma. She says that uh, several offenses captured as serious offenses under the imping provisions, uh, such as deceptive telemarketing, uh, for which offenders never received uh, more than a two-year imprisonment, uh, so very far from the 14-year. And she says, Ms. Sharma, that uh, the imping provisions overshoot, overshoot their legislative purpose of punishing more serious offenses, and then there is some uh, overbreadth here. What do you say on that? <clears throat> Thank you, Justice Cote. What we say is the offense that, that, that the legislation is not overbroad. Uh, in terms of the seriousness, in, in, in terms of pun it, goes, it goes too far because it does more than punish serious offen uh, offenders. That's the statement of purpose that the majority, the, you know, my friend is advocating the statement of purpose that the majority below came up with, which was much more limited than what the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal had put forward in Miri, which recognized that there were a number of purposes for why Parliament enacted those limits. And, and I've already talked about those and just talking about the history of this legislation. You know, the concerns of, that were animating Parliament at the time, it was, yes, they don't want people who commit serious offenses to get conditional sentences, but also they were concerned that all the other ways that they had tried to convey that message had been unclear. 
So I think clarity and consistency, which are which was recognized as part of the purpose in Neary, but is lost by the Court of Appeal below in this case, is important because when you look at the legislative history, the Hansard debates, that really is one of the driving forces of par of, of Parliament. You know, we if we're going to draw lines, we need to draw them clearly, especially in sentencing. And, and, and my, my friends on the other side, they do point to deceptive telemarketing. I think they, they point to fraud, small frauds, and they say, you know, how, how is it not overbroad? And, and our response to that is, this is a restriction on a conditional sentence. It is not a mandatory minimum penalty. If someone, if someone is charged with fraud over $5,000 and the fraud is a minor fraud, it's $5,001, for example, you know, then, then that person is not going to go to jail because a conditional sentence isn't available. That person may get a fine. That person could get an intermittent sentence. You know, if, they're, if the moral blameworthiness of that person is so low, uh, then they could get a suspended sentence in probation. Or if the rehabilitation interest in that case is so high, again, suspended sentence. It, the the argument that it's overbroad because some people who are less moral blameworthiness blameworthy because they commit offenses that are at the lower end of the scale somehow defeats the the restriction on one particular form of punishment we say doesn't consider the fact that there's all these other punishments on the table and in Ms. Sharma's case you know no there there's a a, a dearth of cases out there where somebody imported two kilograms of cocaine um, and, and got a conditional sentence. The Ontario Court of Appeal in Hamilton and Mason said, this is a very serious offense. And even where we have very seriously mitigating personal circumstances of offenders before the court, the other principles of sentencing, denunciation, deterrence, they still apply. And, and this court said in Epoly and in Wells, that the GLADU principle in section 718.2e does not mean that an offender is, is guaranteed a particular result. They're guaranteed a particular process, and that process is a trial judge who really, really listens to what the circumstances are before him. A GLADU report that really looks at the circumstances and brings to bear to the court all of the, the history of colonialism, the systemic discrimination, all of the factors that may bear on culpability uh, the, the, in terms of or, or, or the moral blameworthiness of the offender. And, and, and it's not to say, you know, moral, reduced moral culpability that takes into consideration that all of these uh, factors of, of, of historical disadvantage may have, have played a role in bringing this person before the court is not the same thing as, as, as saying there's no, there's no moral agency, you know, and, and we definitely do not want to say that because that's not the case. There's a difference between, you know, committing a crime and not committing a crime. And when we're talking about crime and punishment and sentencing, all of those things have to be taken into consideration. And may I just ask you this question? Um, there, uh, the trial judge um, found that the mandatory minimum under the CDSA was unconstitutional because it breached Section 12. 
that was a decision that the Crown has not appealed and so therefore um, in terms of the overall sentencing regime you're talking about the prohibition from a conditional sentence uh, based on mandatory minimums doesn't exist but I guess what I'm trying to put all the pieces together uh, I'm wondering can you help me with it, it, what is the relevance if any of the fact that the mandatory minimum was conceded as cruel and unusual punishment here? So it, in this case, the Crown at trial um, took the position that the, that the sentence, that an appropriate sentence for Ms. Sharma taking into consideration all of the factors was 18 months. Um, you know, and 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 the the trial judge found that the con, that the the MMP of two years uh, was unconstitutional when it comes to an offender like Miss um, Sharma, and and uh, you know the crown is not defending um, the mandatory minimum punishment in this case. The fact that there is no mandatory minimum punishment means that the trial judge could have given Miss Sharma any available sentence uh, and he, the it, the if he felt that miss sharma did not need to go to jail he could have if the primary focus is you know i'm looking at this offender i really don't think that given the balancing that is involved at sentencing, that a proportionate sentence for this offender is to send her to jail. I don't think it's gonna meet the principles of sentencing in 718.1 or two to send this offender to jail. He could have given her a suspended sentence in probation. He did not do that because her moral blameworthiness is only one part of the puzzle and the other part is the seriousness of the offense. And the, the seriousness of this offense is not something that figures prominently in the decision of the Court of Appeal. Uh, but we say it, it's an important factor, right? Importing two kilograms of cocaine, that has huge detrimental impact on society. This court just recognized the severity of drug crime in Paranto and Felix. And, and, and it's worthy of noting that one of the offenders in that case was also uh, an Indigenous offender. It was a Métis offender. And that person, um, I believe it was a 14-year sentence. So the, the problem in this case is we have all these uh, massive um, factors to, to, to mass society factors to take into consideration you know the 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 problem of overrepresentation, the problem of of, of over incarceration um, but we also have to look at the micro problem that's before you in this case which is a jurisprudential one which is how is this court in 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 section 15 anyways how is this court uh, going to set a test, a workable framework that doesn't do what the, the decision of the majority below does, which is constitutionalize a particular form of punishment. Because in, in again, going back to Gladue and Ippoli, this court never said that one particular form of punishment was required in, in order to give effect to Gladue. 
And Gladue is one of the principles in Section 718, but there are other principles, and all of those principles have to be taken into consideration. Ms. Conroy, you're making compelling arguments about the government's or Parliament's purpose here. I'm wondering, and your time is, is running slow, you, you haven't spoken much about Section 1, about how these same kind of arguments might have been deployed, that is to say, a pressing and substantial purpose, rationally connected, perhaps minimally impaired. You haven't done that. I recognize that the parliamentary record is rather thin for you to be able to make that case. But I'm wondering why you haven't done so, or, or you've done it almost, I don't want to say as an afterthought, but in, in, even in your factum, it's, you give it rather short shrift. The, the focus of the, 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 the primary concern of the Crown in this case is, the work, uh, is a workable framework for Section 15. That, that's the that is the, the problem that brought us to this court looking for a solution, is can we look at what the Court of Appeal did below and, and the test for Section 15, and, and can that be ameliorated? Because our concern is, as we've set out in the factum, and I've already alluded to, the, you know, the, 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 the framework that they've come up with uh, below is a framework that really will um, call into question the ability of Parliament to enact and amend criminal law. I, I take your point. So the, the constitutional questions before yes. this court deal with the Section 52 power, and, and yes. that requires us to go to that second stage, even if, uh, I mean, if in the un unfortunate circumstance that one would disagree with you on the first point, for example. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Justice Cassia. And we don't disagree. I was simply explaining, because you mentioned that we gave short shrift to Section 1 in our factum, that in the al allocation of our 40 pages, we felt it was the most pressing and substantial for us to make our case as to why we would really love it if this court could intervene on Section 15. You simply but had to balance to say... the salutary effects with the deleterious effects, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Right. Well... <laughs> And yes, so, but that's not to say that we're abandoning Section 1, and we do have a case to make on Section 1, and we did a lot of what we, in our factum, before we get into our Section 15 argument, there is a, quite a lot of discussion in our factum of the conditional sentence and the sentencing reforms, and there are a lot of references there to legislative history that informs this process. It's also something that we discuss under Section 7, but our pitch in the, I, I've lost the clock that, oh, in the, I, I found the clock and it tells me I have one minute. Um, so the pitch on section one in the minute that I have left, Justice Cassie, is basically that this, that par this court has recognized on many occasions that the criminal lawmaking power of parliament is an important one. You know, this court in Latimer made a number of comments with, to, to that effect that, that, that apply in this case. The pressing and substantial objective of Parliament, we say, is obvious. It's obvious in the legislative history that we've provided. It's obvious in looking at Part 23 of the Code. And the fact that this is a, a regime that has to account for a multitude of public policy interests. It's not just 
the offender before the court and how do we punish them. It's how do we also take into consideration restitution to victims, restitution to the community, rehabilitation, reintegration. These are big concepts that Parliament had to balance when they, when, whenever they're introducing a piece of legislation, particularly in something as important and as complex as sentencing. And we say that when you get to the second part of the Section 1 inquiry and you look at the, the, the rational connection, the minimal impairment, and the balancing at the end of the day of all of these things, then, then though, then, and giving deference to Parliament and recognizing the significance of these issues, that, that, that we say a case can be made out uh, for, for Section 1 on the particular facts of this case. So, Justice Karakatsanis has one final question for you. Uh, you may, in fact, have answered it. I, I was going to ask you that many of the uh, submissions that you've made about the seriousness of the offense, about the competing public policy issues, um, would appropriately be dealt with in Section 1 as well. And, and after all, there's no breach of the Charter unless both Section 15 and Section 1 are analyzed. So my question was going to be, does it, could it easily fit under Section 1? And I think your answer was yes. Uh, yes, Justice Karakasanis, absolutely. A lot of what I've said also applies to Section 1. And, and in saying that, I recognize, just, Justice Cassie, we recognize your decision in CP where, uh, you know, there is, there is a, a, an open question in this court as to when we're talking about the contextual inquiry that I talked about at, at Stage 2 of section, the Section 15 test, that that there is an open question in this court about whether that belongs in 15 or whether that belongs in one. And, 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 and we argued it under 15, but we say it has equal application under section one. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. <clears throat> Noah Vernikovsky. Thank you, Chief Justice. Saskatchewan will start by addressing Justice Brown's question about causation, and then we'll make three points. We submit that causation is considered at both steps, but it is primarily a step one issue. For, indis for indirect discrimination claims, step one requires a disproportionate effect based on a protected characteristic. And this necessitates the identification of an effect of the impugned provision, which necessitates an inquiry into what the impugned provision actually causes and whether that effect is based on a protected characteristic. Step two then assesses the identified effect and ask whether it amounts to a burden or the denial of a benefit that has the manner of reinforcing, perpetuating, or exasperating disadvantage. An inquiry that also may look at causation to some extent. At step one though, a distinction based on a protected characteristic has to be established, and this requires that the claimant prove an effect on the part of the provision. And we submit that this is mostly a step one case. On to Except, can three I, other can I bring now. you back, though? I mean, on the step one side, I understand that uh, your submission is you need to prove a distinction um, and an adverse effect. But didn't uh, Justice Abella and Fraser say there was no necessity to prove uh, that there is um, sort of, um, there's no causation requirement at that step, right? That, uh, um, that uh, you don't have to show 
that it the uh, let me see there's no requirement to prove that the law itself was responsible for creating the background social or physical barriers which made a particular rule requirement or criterion disadvantageous for the claimant group paragraph 71 um, Thank you, Justice Martin. I, I, I have an answer in one, one of the footnotes. I believe, it, I believe it's footnote. Um, I, I, I submit that, that, that there's a distinction between not having to prove the background factors. Was the, was the loan cause or causes in a bet but for sense? Um, but at the same time, there having to be a requirement of, of the based for or on the based on. That, that, that's that first part of that component. That's, that, that's my position on that point. Um, that at first, at the first step, there is a requirement to prove a distinction based on an enumerator analogous ground. That's, and that's, that's not a but for causation test, but there still is, is a question there about, about what that means. Um, onto Saskatchewan's three other points. Point one relates to the first step of the section 15 test. And for indirect discrimination cases, we argue that the claimant should advance a, theor a clear theory of distinction at first instance. The second point is a dir direct response to one theory of distinction put before this court. And the third and final point relates to section one and, and time permitting, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that. So first, theories of distinction. The point I submit is particularly, and I submit this is particularly pertinent in this appeal where, um, where, where, where we're not entirely sure what the theory of distinction an issue is or what the adverse impact based on race the court found below was. And I, a point that I wanna make clear for, for the court is that a facially neutral provision could create a distinction based on race or have a disproportionate effect based on race in a variety of distinct ways. For example, it could affect protected group members differently because it applies to them more frequently or it could affect them differently because it applies in a way that creates or leaves behind comparatively worse or disadvantaging results. And if the issue is worse outcomes, those outcomes could be worse in a variety of ways. This means that indirect discrimination claims necessarily focus on particular theories of distinction or particular articulations of in what way a law disproportionately affects protected group members based on that protected characteristic. Um, in most cases, it's not possible to defend against general claims of indirect discrimination or claims where the respondent has no idea what the effect is that's allegedly discriminatory. The respondent can only address particular theories of distinction and either argue against them, justify them, or concede them. So my submission is that the claimant should articulate in what way the impugned law creates a distinction based on a protected ground of first instance so that the respondent is made aware of the specific claim to which they must respond and about which they should call evidence when they have the opportunity to do so. And this is particularly true where is this here where the respondent has no mechanism for demanding particulars. We submit that this is partly what this court meant in Whittler when it said that claimants in these cases have more work to do with the first step. It was about evidence, but also articulation. And we submit this is partly what this court meant in Tapotat when it suggested the court below erred in deciding a matter on a theory of distinction that was neither pleaded before the federal court nor the federal court of appeal. Although the court's concern in Tapotat was predominantly the shifting theory of distinction resulted in an insufficient evidentiary foundation for the new theory. Fairness concerns are also engaged in our submissions. When a theory of distinction isn't argued at first instance, um, 
It will, the, be, the it will be put to us by others that what you are referring to in Whistler and Tapotet was overruled in Fraser, and therefore we should not have regard to the, uh, the two earlier cases. What do you say to that? Thank you, Justice Rowe. My, my position is that Frazier has only overruled those cases to the extent that, that um, it's obvious in the reasoning of Frazier. And, and Frazier spoke about um, the first step not being particularly onerous, but it, it in no way um, relieved the claimant of a requirement to prove a distinction based on enumerated or analogous ground at the first step. It, it was very clear that that remains the first step and that, that, and that the, um, the onus for proving that step is, is on the claimant. And it went through the types of evidence that, that are required to prove that. And what our submissions on the point is that a corollary of this is that you have to know about what that evidence is for, what, what the effect and issue is. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll move to the second point now where I address one theory of distinction. Um, before this court. Some parties have argued there's a distinction based on race solely because the impugned provisions impair the sentencing judge's ability to order some forms of Gladue-informed sentences. They argue it's discriminatory to statutorily prevent judges from ordering CSOs, when CSOs may be that judge's top choice for advancing Gladue, proportionality, restorative justice, or other important sentencing principles. We submit it's not discriminatory to legislate some limits on sentencing discretion, just because those limits may increase incarceration for all, including those belonging to an over-incarcerated group. Judges would be better equipped to address all types of over-incarceration if they had every sentencing option available to them all the time. But that doesn't mean that every limit, whether legislated or logistical, on available sanctions is automatically discriminatory. Also, this argument, it's important to note, leaves no room for any statutory limits on conditional sentences, no room for any mandatory minimum sentence. And that's in our submissions difficult to reconcile with this court section seven and section 12 jurisprudence that specifically maintained a role for parliament in the sentencing process by concluding that those sections of the charter do not require unfettered judicial discretion in sentencing. For example, by it, by one centering the section 12 inquiry on the highly deferential concept of gross disproportionality, see Lloyd at tab four, and two, by rejecting proportionality as a principle of fundamental justice in the context of section seven, see the case at tab five, where this court said, and I quote, parliament can limit a sentencing judge's ability to impose a fit sentence, but it cannot require sending judges to impose grossly disproportionate punishment. Though not determinative of the section 15 issue, these cases show this court has interpreted the charter as to maintain parliament's legitimate role in setting sentencing policy, has as of yet not constitutionalized unfettered judicial discretion in sentencing, and we submit that section 15 also should be applied with this in mind. It takes me to, to my third and final point. Um, I'm unable to see, see the clock right now. Um, I'll carry on. You have, you, um, have, you have 50 seconds. 50 seconds. Um, thank you, thank you, Chief Justice. Um, in, light of, in light of the brief time I have, I'll, I'll, I'll direct the, the court to my factum on this point, which, which I submit is 
is a really pressing issue right now in Section 15 jurisprudence. Is there's been this change, there's been in the division of labor between 15 and 1, and many considerations that have always been part of 15 in some form have been moved to Section 1, not expressly abandoned, and, and the idea is that they will be considered there. And, and it, it, it's time for the court to consider the way it's going to be considered in Section 1. Um, and, and the space and how to make space for it in section one. And that's, that's really what my submissions are on, on, on that um, section one point. I, 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 it's, I, I think it's quite, quite, a, critical, quite a critical point. Um, right. Now your time is up. Okay, Th thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Micah Renkin. Yes, uh, good morning, uh, Chief Justice, Justices. My submissions today are going to expand on three arguments made uh, in my factum. But before I turn to, uh, uh, turn to those points, I just want to pick up on a, a few of the questions that were asked by the members of the court this morning. The first question I wanted to, uh, to speak to was the question about causation that, uh, that Mr. Justice Brown had, uh, had raised and also that was touched on by my friend from, from Saskatchewan. Uh, in my submission, causation should be dealt with or considered at both stages of the Section 15 analysis. Um, I say that at, at the first stage, um, there has to be the, the, the infringing measure itself that's challenged under Section 15 has to cause, or if, if not causation, it has to make the distinction. It has to result in the distinction that's complained of. Um, for Section 15 to be engaged. And, and Justice Martin asked, well, uh, or, or referred to uh, the question of whether or not that meant there had to be proof that the, uh, of all, uh, that the law caused the background circumstances. And, and we agree that it doesn't have to, there doesn't have to be proof of, of the background cir circumstances of every circumstance that leads to the, the, the distinction. But the infringing measure has to be uh, itself causative at the first and second stage of the analysis in, in my submission. The other question that came up was, uh, was asked by uh, Justice Karakatsanis, and um, I, I'm probably paraphrasing to some extent here, but, but uh, Justice Karakatsanis uh, asked whether or not, um, given the existing over-incarceration of Indigenous people, why wouldn't it logically follow the impact of these kinds of measures, of the infringing measures here, would be greater for Indigenous people. And, and what I say in response to that is that Section 15, it, it, it of course contains a comparative element. It's not simply a question of what occurred, uh, for example, before 2012, before the amendments and after. Un undoubtedly, the effect of the restrictions that were enacted in 2012 was to increase imprisonment. That was the purpose of the provisions, was to increase the use of imprisonment. And so it presumably increased imprisonment for everyone, for any person who would have obtained a CSO previous, previously. The purpose of the legislation was to make it a sentence of, of jail. And so there needs to be, in my submission, differential treatment. And uh, this court uh, held in, in Tepetat that there has to be something more than a web of instinct. And so I say there needs to be evidence of differential treatment in order to engage Section 15, not simply um, uh, uh, further in uh, incarceration for Indigenous people. I, the other question I, uh, that I wanted to address was the one raised by Mr. Justice Jamal. And 
uh, Justice Jamal asked the question of whether or not the majority in the court below found that a distinction had occurred in this case because of the loss of the the uh, of an accommodation. And in response, I say, yes, in, indeed, that's what the majority found. And in my submission, that that is central to the error that was made in the court below was relying on the loss of a benefit in order to to conclude that a distinction had been uh, drawn by the uh, impugned CSO restrictions. In my submission, unless the result of removing an accommodation is to lead to a differential access to a benefit, that's not sufficient to establish uh, to establish a distinction for the purposes of Section 15. And again, I would point not only to paragraph 70, but also to paragraph um, 83 of the majority's reasons where I say it's, it's, it's key that that is, or, or it's, it's clear that is what the majority is finding, but I say that's exactly, that's exactly the error in this case to, to conclude that the mere loss of a benefit is sufficient to establish a distinction. So with that, I want to turn sorry, to... Can isn't, I just, isn't the point, just, though, that, that for Indigenous people, the benefit is particularly important because of their incarceration? I mean, we can go in circles on this point, but that's the point of the particular accommodation. It's particularly important for them. And just to add on to that, the point is not just that there is over-incarceration, but it's the extent of that. It's the gross incarceration, over-incarceration, that allows you to say as a matter of logic, it's going to have a differential impact on their risk of imprisonment. Well, I, I accept that for for uh, for many groups, ameliorative benefit schemes may be more beneficial. So I point out in my factum, for example, that access to medical services or access to social housing, many of these things benefit certain groups much more than they do others. But it's not enough in my submission that the loss of the benefit be disproportionately felt by a beneficiary group. What this course jurisprudence holds in my submission is that the benefit has to be conferred in some type of unequal manner. So for example, um, the case law, I say the case law that, that really applies on the facts of this case are uh, cases like Eldridge, Auten, Vreend, and the question in those cases is not simply sh it, it is not should a benefit be granted, it's whether or not the benefit is granted in an equal manner as between different categories of beneficiaries. Because this court has held in its Section 15 jurisprudence that 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 the uh, that Parliament and the legislatures are under no positive duty to create uh, to enact measures that are intended to combat systemic uh, discrimination. So the question has to be, I submit, for the first stage of the Section 15 analysis at least, is does the removal of the CSO restrictions lead in an unequal conferral of the benefit on categories of offenders? And that's, that's exactly what the majority did not do in the court below. The problem with the majority's reasons is that they concluded that the distinction arose because of the impairment of the GLADU framework, and they also looked at the broader phenomena of Indigenous uh, over-incarceration as the source of the distinction. And there, there are a few problems with this. One of the problems is that the majority, as I say, asked the wrong question. The majority's analysis is, is linear or longitudinal because it, when it should have been comparative. It, didn't, it asked about the situation of Indigenous offenders before 2012 and after 2012. But what 
I say this court's jurisprudence commands is a comparison of how the benefit is received as between, in this case, I would say as between Indigenous and non-Indigenous offenders. And um, that uh, again turns to this court's jurisprudence, or it should have, to Eldridge, Breend, Otten, and Fraser as well. And it, it's remarkable in my submission that the majority doesn't deal with any of those cases. It doesn't talk about Eldridge or Vreen or any of these accommodation cases or what I might call benefits cases. Because I say, in effect, a CSO is a benefit created by Parliament that's enacted in the criminal code. And the question becomes, is that benefit distributed in a manner that conforms with Section 15 of the Charter? And I say that's the analysis that the majority didn't undertake. Another problem with the majority's reasoning, which goes back to the same, the same point and, and the same one I think uh, addressing uh, Justice Dramal's question, is that the majority's analysis of, of the GLADU framework and the CSO regime involves a, a significant element of historical reconstruction. It's simply not the case in my submission that CSOs in 718.2 sub e were inextricably interlinked legislative proposals. And I've gone, th I've traced the history in my factum. I've included in my condensed book at tab 11, an article from Professor uh, Alan Manson, who talks about this history in detail. Um, these two reforms had a completely different statutory history, or at least a history in terms of criminal law reform proposals. And they eventually converged in one piece of legislation together with many other amendments in 1995. And in fact, in 1984, a bill proposing a CSO was before Parliament and died on the order paper. And I have the language of that proposal at tab six of my condensed book. You can see a provision that was, that was proposed uh, 10 years, 11 years before. And, and CSOs, in fact, go back to the late 1960s, to the We May Commission. So this is not to say that these proposals don't have any relationship, but I think to suggest, as the majority does, as the respondent does here, and many of the interveners, that these are inextricably linked, such that the re removal of one impairs the other, is, is uh, I say, not historically accurate. A, a third problem with the uh, with the analysis of the majority, and it 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 interrelates to the the point I've just made, is that there's an element of of constitutional bootstrapping. And I don't mean to be pejorative in, in saying that, but, but in tying uh, limits on CSOs to 718.2 sub e. And, and I say that a CSO, the CSO restrictions cannot be rendered unconstitutional because they impair another statutory duty. Now, Section 718.2 sub e is clearly an important principle. It's an aspirational principle, but it's not a principle of fundamental justice. And so it can't be the case that that if Parliament impairs or limits uh, the ability of sentencing judges to give effect to 718.2 sub e, that in my submission cannot be contrary to the Charter because it's one statutory enactment that's affecting another statutory enactment, even right. if it's an important one. Thank you very much. And so, I'm sorry, your time is up. Oh, thank you. Pardon me. Thank you, uh, members of the court. So the court will take its morning break, 15 minutes.
Merci. Veuillez vous asseoir. Seated. Mr. Hassan. Thank you, Chief Justice. Good morning, Justices. Mr. Aylward and I will be dividing oral argument. We're going in a different order from the Crown. I'm going to be first addressing the Section 7 arguments, and Mr. Aylward will address the Section 15 arguments. Before I turn to Section 7, however, I, I would like to make an overarching point. It's important to situate this case in reality and to not lose sight of that reality. And the reality is that for decades now, this country has faced a crisis of over-incarceration of indigenous persons, a crisis that's only gotten worse since Parliament enacted Section 718.2e and the conditional sentencing tool in 1996 and it's gotten worse since this court decided Gladue in 1999, and worse still since Ipeely was decided in 2012, and still worse since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission released its calls to action in 2015. And against that background of rising incarceration and over-incarceration, Conditional sentences serve a vital function, allowing what are ostensibly jail sentences to be served in the community, breaking the cycle of community dislocation, family separation, and intergenerational trauma. The impugned provisions, however, put conditional sentences out of reach in a huge number of cases, just as they did for Ms. Shayan Sharma a young woman whose circumstances were such that the trial judge described them as a constellation of Gladue factors. And we submit that the impugned provisions aren't just bad policy, aren't just counterproductive to reconciliation, but that they are unconstitutional under both Section 7 and 15 of the Charter. Turning to Section 7, Justices, we have two Section 7 arguments. First, the impugned provisions are overbroad because the means chosen overshoot Parliament's purposes. Maximum sentence is a poor proxy for seriousness of a given offense. And secondly, the impugned provisions are arbitrary in that, the effect, in that they have the effect of removing the proportionate middle of the range of available sentencing options, forcing judges, in some cases, to impose sentences that are arguably either disproportionately too high or disproportionately too low, as the case may be. And the result is an inconsistent approach to sentencing, which undermines rather than promotes Parliament's purposes. Now, dealing first with overbreadth, uh, the Crown and, and we are ad idem on the test for, for overbreadth. That overbreadth addresses a situation where there's no rational connection between the purposes of the law and some but not all of its impacts. And, and that's what the 
Court of Appeal majority found here that the impugned provisions were overbroad in respect of Parliament's goal of ensuring that serious offenses are punished with jail. And with respect to my friends, uh, the Court of Appeals Section 7 overbreadth holding is a straightforward application of this court's fairly recent precedents from Bedford, Moriarty, to Safrazadeh Marcali, and in, indeed we say hi highly analogous to Safrazadeh Marcali. Now, step one in the overbreadth analysis is, is of course identifying the legislative purpose. Uh, the Crown disagrees uh, with the approach taken the, the, in the court below. The, the majority says that the purpose is to maintain integrity of justice of the justice system by ensuring that serious, sorry, by ensuring that offenders who commit serious offenses receive prison sentences. The dissent agreed. It was one of the few things that the dissent and the majority agreed on at the Court of Appeal, that this was indeed the purpose of the legislation. And what about, indeed- What about providing consistency and clarity to the uh, conditional sentence regime? I mean, this wasn't the first time Parliament took certain offenses off the table, um, but in doing so, they created other problems, so there was lack of clarity. And so Parliament chose this approach, which may not be the perfect approach, mm -hmm. but it would certainly bring clarity to the situation. I just say that it seems to me that's another purpose, Mr. Hassan, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, Justice Moldaver, I, I, I would suggest that that approach of identifying clarity as, as the, the purpose of the provision um, would be inconsistent with the approach that this court has previously taken in identifying the legislative purpose of a given provision. Um, bear in mind, uh, Justice Moldaver, that the, the, this court has consistently emphasized that when you're trying to identify the purpose, it's, it's not the, you're not looking at the, the purpose um, of the overall scheme, but of the specific provision. And further, uh, Justice Moldaver, in Moriarty and Safrazadi Mercalli, this court emphasized that purpose needs to be characterized at the at the appropriate level of generality, which resides somewhere in between a statement of animating social value, which is too general, and a narrow articulation uh, that amounts to a virtual repetition of the challenge provision divorced from its context. And, and what I say to that, Justice Moldaver, is the nary purposes, which, which you've alluded to, which include providing consistency and clarity, this is in the nature of a of an of an animating social value, um, promoting safety, public safety, uh, which was another one of the nary purposes, promoting consistency and, and clarity, emphasizing denunciation and deterrence. These are animating social values that one might say are animating social values behind all sentencing legislation, particularly laws that make the the, the sentencing scheme more harsh. So how, how is that, how, how is that uh, distinct then from ensuring that offenders who commit serious offenses do prison time? That, that, is that not stated at a rather high level of generality as well? Uh, ensuring that, that, that offenders do prison time 
who commit um, serious it, offenses receive prison sentences. That's that. Yeah. That was the purpose accepted, as you say, by both sets of reasons at the Court of Appeal. I'm just not sure if the distinction that that I, which I accept uh, yeah. that that you're drawing from the jurisprudence is, is capable of obvious application sometimes. I, I appreciate uh, uh, Justice Brown that. Uh, this is a test that does require a, a nuanced analysis. It requires a contextual analysis. I, 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 I break out in a rash when I hear the word nuance, <laughs> but that's just me. Because I, I, I'm, I'm one of those guys who really keeps it simple whenever possible. I have to tell you that the, uh, while the uh, majority and the minority, uh, and I may get the exact wording wrong, uh, agreed that maintaining the integrity of the criminal justice system by ensuring prison sentences are ordinarily applied to certain serious offenses or something like that. I take the wording, maintaining the integrity of the criminal justice system, to be an, un an unnecessary and distracting rhetorical flourish. That's the kind of high-level, um, hortatory um, uh, uh, statement of purpose that gets us nowhere. That, that's absolutely useless, whereas ensuring the prison sentences are ordinarily applied to certain serious offenses, that's concrete, that's specific, and that's useful. And it seems to me that that is really uh, what the purpose is here. And the, the stuff about the integrity of the criminal justice system is uh, somewhat baroque and, and unhelpful. I, I agree with that and accept that, Justice Rowe. That's the purpose of the provision. Uh, the, the, what you described as baroque and unhelpful is preambulatory. I'll accept that that is the statement of purpose, to ensure that serious offenses receive jail time. And indeed, that is entirely consistent with what the parliamentary record shows time and time again when the minister and parliamentary secretary we're discussing this legislation and we've included at tabs eight and nine of the condensed book examples of repeated references uh, to, to the purposes of the bill where the Minister of Justice says this bill is very specific that the, with the most serious offenses within the criminal code, you'll not be eligible to go home afterward. There are and will continue to be serious consequences and at tab nine, um, later reiterating the point at the House of Commons, our act would ensure that serious offenses, including serious property offenses like arson, would not result in house arrest. This would ensure that jail sentences for such offenses are served in jail. One thing so I couldn't tell from that excerpt was who was speaking there. I mean, if I, it, I, because it, it, ma it matters, it, right? If it's the minister, then that maybe is authoritative. If it's the member for Rainy River, you know, maybe not so much. Yeah, Ju Justice Brown, your point is duly taken. Uh, the, the excerpts that we've included um, are, are, are focused on, on the minister. Okay, uh, and all right, indeed perfect. The, That's good, yeah. thank you. Yeah. And indeed also the excerpts that the, the Court of Appeal uh, cites in the majority reasons uh, also uh, include excerpts from the minister. So that, that is, uh, I think, fairly clear. Isn't the distinction uh, between you and the Crown much more specific, uh, Mr. Hassan? Because as I understand your argument, it's that uh, the legislation is overbroad because Parliament used the maximum sentence as a proxy for seriousness and could result in 
including sentences at the lowest end of the sentencing spectrum, and then you also add, including for some less serious offences like counterfeiting and false advertising, as noted by Justice Fellman. The Crown says that all offences, for, for example, drug offences, are of a piece as being inherently all of them, even ones that end up at the lowest end of the sentencing range. They're all serious, and so there is no overbreadth. Isn't that the uh, key distinction between your respective positions? It is, Justice Jabal, the key distinction between our respective positions, and, and we disagree with that. We say that the height of the ceiling should tell you nothing about the height of the floor. The fact that a serious offense can be committed by a theoretical serious offender who commits that offense in a very different way should not be used as a proxy to preclude someone who commits a, a lower level offense from receiving a fit and proportionate sentence. That's the essence of, of our argument. And that applies with equal vigor to section 742.1C and E2. 742.1C is the provision that, that limits the conditional sentence for, for any offense where the maximum sentence is 14 years or life. Uh, that's a tremendously broad spectrum, especially when we take into account the fact that sec subsection B of 742.1 already precludes a conditional sentence for offenses where there's a constitutionally valid mandatory minimum sentence. So what we're really talking about are offenses where there's a mandatory minimum of zero up to a maximum sentence of 14 years of life. And that is a huge number of offenses. Uh, we've included in, in the condensed book at tabs 13 and 14 lists prepared by the federal government that identify some but not not all of the offenses affected by subsection C, and they include the ones that Justice Cote referred to earlier, forging a passport and Competition Act type offenses like price fixing, false advertising, and deceptive telemarketing. What these offenses, contrary to the, the Crown submission, what these offenses have in common is not that they're uniformly serious offenses, but that they're, they're broad spectrum offenses, meaning that they can be committed under along a spectrum of seriousness, in some cases borderline criminal, in some cases extremely serious. Fraud being a good example of that was alluded to earlier. The, the, different, the, the, the point here is that because, just because someone can commit fraud by committing a billion-dollar Ponzi scheme with thousands of, of uh, victims over the course of a very lengthy period of time shouldn't preclude, constrain the sentencing options available for someone who commits a one-time modest fraud of 5,001. That, that is the, the point here. But under this scheme, both are equally ineligible for a conditional sentence. And, and given that, under the scheme that's always existed and been embedded into Section 
uh, that you, it, it had to be, it couldn't be something where a penitentiary sentence would have been available and it had to be consistent with public safety. Given that, that those criteria always existed in there, the real import and the real effect of these impugned provisions is to, to deprive those at the committing offenses at the low level of, of seriousness uh, of the, the potential benefit of the conditional sentence. Even manslaughter falls within this category, a broad spectrum offense. It captures situations just sort of murder, extremely serious. Uh, it also captures situations where, where the moral blameworthiness is substantially lower. And we've included in our condensed book at tab 29, a, a, a relatively new case from the Ontario uh, uh, Superior Court called George, Queen and George. Uh, Tina George pled guilty to the stabbing of her sister's abuser who had just recently repeatedly assaulted her sister and her. Ms. George is an Indigenous woman who herself had a disability and a young child who had special needs. Separating the two of them would have only contributed further to intergenerational dysfunction. And the trial judge emphasized in that case, paragraph 63, that this is a case that underscores why conditional sentences are important. And our submission is for someone like Ms. George or Ms. Sharma, it makes no sense to deprive them of this possible sentencing outcome simply because there exist theoretically much more serious offenders whose sentence would be 14 years or life. Or conditional discharges and absolute discharges out now too, they're constitutionally uh, unsound. Justice Moldaver, I, I, I take it that, that you're referring uh, to the fact that conditional discharges also uh, utilize maximum sentence. Uh, as as one of the uh, the criteria, um, I, I take it that that's the, the import of the question. Well, that's um, the the import of your submission is yeah. that they should go too, because I'm sure there's lots of people, indigenous and otherwise, low you know marginalized people and so on who would love to have a conditional discharge, yeah. um, and and it's not available. So, and that may impact on their ability to get jobs and so on and so forth, um, you know, they have, they'll have a criminal record, but we're just to ignore that, I guess. Is this beyond what Parliament can do? Because the same group of offenses that you are now saying can be committed in so many different ways applies to those as well. Yeah. So, you know, either we're going to give Parliament some policy leeway or we're not. I guess yeah. I would put to you a question, which is this. If Parliament chose yeah. to get rid of conditional sentences completely because they came to the view that they just weren't working and it's just not worth it and so on and so forth, they made a bad policy decision, I guess you would say they can't do that. Okay. Justice Moldaver, you, you asked two very important questions. I'll try to address them in turn. First, with respect to conditional discharges and discharges. Um, first, I, I would point out that there is, there is some distinction between that situation 
um, where we're, we're dealing with collateral consequences of a conviction versus a situation as stark as the one we're dealing with here, where the deprivation of liberty is at its most serious, that being jail. So that's the first distinction. The second point I'll make is, Justice Moldaver, if, if I'm being completely candid, the import of my, of my argument um, may apply equally in a challenge to the limitations on, on conditional discharges. It's, it's going to depend on the legislative purposes uh, that Parliament had in, in creating those limitations, because overbreadth analysis is not about telling government whether what it's doing is a good or bad thing. Overbreadth analysis is, is about weighing the means chosen to the purposes of Parliament and, and determining whether or not there is a rational connection. And, and I'll, I'll use that as a segue into answering your second question, Justice Moldaver. Could Parliament scrap conditional sentences altogether? Mr. Aylward will have a lot to say on that with respect to Section 15, but dealing strictly with Section 7 overbreadth, the answer is, is yes, it could. It could. Because overbreadth analysis doesn't say what Parliament is and what it isn't allowed to do. Overbreadth analysis is concerned with the asserted purposes of Parliament and whether the means overshoot the ends. And if the means, if the ends here were to deprive uh, individuals of uh, conditional sentences and ensure jail for serious cases, the means aren't rationally connected to the goal in a vast number of cases. And that's, that's as true with Section 42.1C uh, as it is for 742.1E2. Uh, which, which, although it, it's focused on, on drug offenses, um, it, it also applies to broad spectrum offenses, as this court pointed out in Lloyd. And some, some counsel are going to say to us, this is just a business as usual case. There's no big implications. This has all been sorted out. It's just the application of things that, that are well settled. It's... Um, these aren't the droids we're looking for, just let's, you know, let us through kind of thing. Uh, I know I, I stole it from Justice Brown. But to get to the point, it, it seems to me that what you were saying, which, which I think is an accurate way in which it's, it's consistent with what you've laid out in your materials and your line of argument, this really is quite a large case, which has very significant and broad implications. That's what I'm getting from you now. Well, I, I think in terms of applying established legal principles and precedents, I think it's a straightforward application, particularly when it comes to Section 7. This case, I would submit, Justice Rowe, is, is, is highly analogous to the court. Uh, the majority's approach in the court below is highly analogous to the approach taken by this court in Safrazadeh Mercalli, a, a unanimous decision. But no, Justice Rowe, I can't, I can't deny that there are, there are broad implications uh, arising out of, of uh, the majority's decision in, in, with respect to both Section 7 and Section 15. We, we don't deny that for a minute. Well, we're on that. I, I just, um, and maybe this is more for Mr. Alward, I'm not sure, but uh, 
where does this end? If Parliament wants to raise the tariff for child abuse or any other crime that we can think of, so they raise the penalties. Now that of necessity is going to mean, it seems to me, that more people are going to go to jail, um, including indigenous people. Mm-hmm. So are we effectively going to say that Parliament has to weigh every time it wants to say, you know what, this is a, more, this is a serious crime, we want to raise the level because we don't think trial judges are imposing strict enough sentences and so on. I mean, just take Friesen, take all that, that whole jurisprudence. I mean, in doing what we did in Friesen, frankly, more people are going to go to jail. So maybe what we did in Friesen is unconstitutional too. I mean, I don't know where this ends. I really don't know where it ends. And it seems to me you are effectively hobbling, trying to hobble Parliament from doing really making any sort of policy decisions that might end up with more people, including indigenous people, going to jail. That's how serious I see this case as. Others see it as just commonplace. Justice Moldaver, I don't think anyone sees this as, as commonplace. I think everyone is alive to the tremendous implications um, on both sides of the aisle. But I'll, I'll answer the question, uh, your Friesen question, um, with respect to Section 7, and I'll, I'll leave Mr. Aylward to, to talk about it from a Section 15 perspective. No, we're not, as a, from a Section 7 perspective, we're not saying that what was done in Friesen is wrong. And Parliament, from a Section 7 perspective, Parliament is free to, to raise man, maximum sentences, as it did in, in, in Friesen. Um, and I appreciate that the Crown relies on Friesen for the, the primacy or relevance of maximum sentences. But the court in Friesen didn't do what the court is urging, what, what the Crown is urging this court to accept here, which is that, that Friesen stands for the proposition that, that maximum sentences can be a, a necessary and sufficient proxy of seriousness. Maximum sentence is relevant to the range. We don't doubt that. But it's, it's one thing to say that maximum sentence is relevant to informing the range and the discretionary mix that goes into a sentencing court's analysis. But this court, this court has said it's an objective, it's an objective yardstick. We said it, we've said it several times. Lacasse, it says it, other cases, it's an objective yardstick as to seriousness. So, I, I mean, what does that mean? We just ignore that and say you can't do that, you can't use this objective yardstick uh, parliament because some of the crimes may be treated less seriously in certain circumstances? Yeah, I'm just Smoldiver, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with Friesen or Paranto at all. It's an objective yardstick. It informs the seriousness of a range. But that is very, a very different thing from saying that the maximum sentence can be the be-all and end-all and dictate sentencing outcomes, which is the import here. It's, it's one thing to say that a maximum sentence for importing a Schedule I um, uh, substance is, is greater than the maximum sentence for importing a Schedule Three sentence. Therefore, all things being equal, 
uh, importing a Schedule One substance is is the more serious offense. But 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 it's a completely other thing to say. Well, because the max sentence is for importing a Schedule Three substance is lower um, than than the max sentence for importing a Schedule One substance, then then the the uh, you know drug kingpin involved in schedule in schedule three substance importation is at a different level or a lower level of seriousness than someone like Ms. Sharma who who uh, committed this this offense under uh, a one-time offense under uh, circumstances of of uh, uh, economic. Let's uh, not confuse the seriousness of the crime with the uh, very disturbing. Uh, personal characteristics and background and so on. I think Justice Court of Appeal made that quite clear re recently in Morris and before that in Hamilton. Now, are you taking offense to that or what? No, Justice Moldaver. I, I, let, let's take, even if we take out individual personal characteristics, which, which are of course important, but the, the, the point I'm making here is that Friesen doesn't stand for the proposition that maximum sentence alone uh, can dictate the seriousness of the given offense. It is a factor that informs the sentencing judge's discretion. And, and that's what Friesen stands for. What's going on here is something far different, where whereas sentencing court's discretion is limited based on the theoretical most serious offense that can be committed within the rubric of, of that particular offense. That's, that's what I'm saying, and that's why this is different from Friesen. I wonder why there wasn't a challenge to these things right off the bat when Parliament said they're only available if the sentence would be two years less a day. I mean, after all, the difference between that and two years and six months, my goodness, that'd be a lot more people who wouldn't have to go to jail if it was two, two and a half years or three years or five years. I mean, where do we draw a line on this? Or do we just take all policy considerations that Parliament takes into account and say, there could have been a better way, there would have been more people kept out of jail if they'd made it three years, and therefore, you know, there's obviously marginalized groups and indigenous people and so on are going to have to go to jail when really if it was three years, you know, a lot of them would not have to go to jail. I'm, I'm not being, trying to be silly or facetious here. I'm just trying to figure out where we draw a line on what Parliament can do and can't do in the criminal law. I would never suggest, Justice Moldaver, that you, that you are being silly, and I'm, I'm trying to answer your question as best I can. I, I think the, the answer lies in the overbreadth analysis. I mean, I'm not saying, we're not saying that Parliament can't do these things. What we're saying is that Parliament must be held to account, and when it says it's doing something for a specific purpose, the courts are duty-bound to determine whether or not the means chosen are rationally connected. Uh, that's, that's the point here. So there's, there's, there's any number of ways from a Section 7 perspective that Parliament could have and can amend the conditional uh, sentence regime. It just hasn't done so here. Um, I see that I'm, I'm, I've now uh, taken up more than 30 minutes of time. Uh, given uh, the importance of the Section 15 issues, I'm going to rely on our factum for the arbitrariness uh, argument, and I will turn things over now to uh, 
barring any other questions on Section 7, I, I'll turn things over now to Mr. Aylward. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chief Justice. Um, I'd like to begin by defining what the Section 15 claim in this case is and is not about. And in particular, I'd like to respond to a comment made by uh, Mr. Wernikowski in his submissions that uh, Ms. Sharma's argument on Section 15 has shifted over time. Uh, that simply is not the case. Ms. Sharma's argument was before Justice Hill at the Court of Appeal and today, always focused specifically on the connection between Gladue and conditional sentences. She has never argued that the impugned provisions violate Section 15 solely because they have a numerically outsized or disproportionate impact on Indigenous offenders. That's very likely true, but it's not the basis of the Section 15 claim here. And I'll just give you the reference. You'll see this in, if you look at this, the transcripts of the sentencing hearing, uh, but the easiest place to see this is uh, in the factum filed before the sentencing judge. And I won't take you there, but the reference is uh, in the Court of Appeal Appeal Book, Volume 3, Tab 17, uh, and in particular, Paragraph 75 is a good encapsulation of it. The argument has always been the same. The Crown, from the beginning, has mischaracterized her argument as being about a statistical adverse effect. And unfortunately, the sentencing judge bought into that error. That was corrected at the Court of Appeal. Both the majority and the dissent properly appreciated the nature of the Section 15 claim that Ms. Sharma had been making and was making. In that argument, statistics are important. They play a role in providing context and informing the analysis, although they aren't the heart of the claim. The statistics are relevant because they explain the need for the Gladue framework in the first place. And so they inform the significance of restrictions on that framework. Those statistics paint a very grim picture and one that's only gotten worse. Today, 31% of admissions to provincial and territorial custody are for Indigenous offenders. And as Justice Karakatsanis pointed out, the figures are worse for uh, women Indigenous offenders. Aboriginal Legal Services point out in their fact in a recent study that shows that Indigenous persons in Canada today are nine times more likely to be in prison than a non-Indigenous person. Now, obviously, Indigenous over-incarceration is a complex problem and one that has many causes. As Justice Brown, uh, you pointed out, what the sentencing courts are able to do about it is going to be constrained but one of the causes of the problem today is found in the criminal justice system itself. But the sentencing process has exacerbated the, in, the unequal treatment of Indigenous offenders. 
This court recognized that in Gladue, again in Eppley, and more recently in Ewart. Section 718.2 sub E was introduced by Parliament in order to combat discrimination in the sentencing process. That's what this case is about. Well, I wonder, I wonder whether that is really accurate it, in this sense. I don't say that Parliament was unmindful of that, but another way of viewing it is that while sentences to be fit need to um, take into account the seriousness of the offense and the circumstances of the offender, historically there had been a failure to adequately have regard to the circumstances of offenders who were indigenous, who, who suffered certain, who, who, who bore certain burdens and, and had certain uh, difficulties inflicted upon them on a systemic basis. And, and, and one way of looking at it is that Parliament simply said, judges, in taking into account the circumstances of the offender, take into account those broad societal factors and the impact on this individual, which is a little different from, I think, from what you've said, although I don't want to just play with words. Uh, I, I accept that, uh, Justice Rowe, and uh, perhaps uh, I had in mind uh, a, a broader conception of the sentencing process that uh, really what section 718.2 e is about is substantive equality in the in the sentencing process as the ontario court of appeal held in the leonard case that it's about recognizing that uh, courts need to pay particular attention to those uh, particular uh, social and economic disadvantages facing indigenous offenders and that a failure to do so uh, will uh, perpetuate an unequal treatment by the courts. Uh, Justice Moldaver, your question, where does this end? Uh, I think that question really depends on getting straight what the nature is of the Section 15 argument in this case, because we are not arguing that any stiffening of penal laws will be a violation of Section 15 because it has a disproportionate impact on Indigenous offenders or other marginalized groups. Sorry, just let me stop you for a moment. Do you disagree that if Parliament raises the sentence on various crimes, more people are going to go to jail? I agree with that. And some of those more people will be Indigenous people? Agreed. So, therefore, what? Parliament will be exacerbating an already horrific situation by raising the tariff on whatever offense it might be, and therefore they can't do it because then they are undermining um, the, I don't know, the, <laughs> they're undermining the conditional sentence regime or something. I, I just don't, I mean, they're undermining the notion that really what this is all about is to reduce the number of indigenous people in jail you just agree with me that it would increase the number of Indigenous people in jail. So is that the next challenge? Um, that's a fundamentally different argument from the one 
we're making. I don't think what, what this court does in this case, frankly, would make that challenge more or less likely to succeed because I think it depends on a completely different application of the Section 15 test. It would require looking at the, uh, again, whether there was a distinction and the, the perpetuation of disadvantage uh, along those lines. That would be a much harder case for the claimant to make out. It was a claim that was tried and failed in the newer case at the Court of Appeal, rejected by the majority uh, or the uh, unanimously by the Court of Appeal in Noor. Uh, and it's, it's not the argument that we're making here. This court could accept the argument that we're making and still find that Parliament is free to increase maximum sentences, that uh, it's still a, a free to increase even mandatory minimum sentences uh, because uh, those were never part of the conditional sentence framework. They were excluded from the get-go from the scope of Section 742.1. Yep, but, but, I think, but I think you're, I mean, for obvious reasons, <clears throat> um, you're minimizing the potential implications of what you're asking us to do here. Um, uh, if, if we accept, as the Court of Appeal did, that the distinction relates back to the disadvantage, right? The majority says that the, the, the distinction relates to the over-incarceration of Aboriginal offenders. Would it not follow that the example that Justice Moldaver gives effectively means that increasing a sentence, increasing you know, for what we did in Friesen, or if Parliament were to increase uh, a maximum sentence, which you say would result, and I think it logically follows, in the incarceration of more Indigenous offenders as well as non-Indigenous, would it not follow that, that that's not constitutionally possible if we accept that this isn't constitutionally possible? I, I don't think that's a fair reading of the Court of Appeal, the majority's reasons as a whole, uh, that the Court of Appeal wasn't saying that the distinction flows automatically from the pre-existing disadvantage of Indigenous offenders in the criminal justice system. The distinction is tied specifically to the exclusion of certain Indigenous offenders like Ms. Sharma to the full benefit of uh, a GLADU analysis of the protection of section 718.2 sub e in that sense it's uh, uh the heart of the court of appeals analysis as we see it is the analogy to the alliance case that uh where parliament uh, in that case the provincial legislature had enacted uh anti-discrimination measures that a uh, law that uh, rolled back those provisions without making alternative provision for the circumstances of the affected group uh, triggers review under Section 15. So what's your answer to the question that was posed earlier? Um, would Parliament be able to uh, eliminate conditional sentences altogether? Uh, so that, I think, uh, is directly on point to the Alliance case. And it's uh, the response to my friend's point as well that uh, the 
analysis of the majority below constitutionalized uh, conditional sentences. We, we don't say it did, and we don't think that's a necessary implication of the court's uh, analysis. That uh, the reforms in 1996 brought in a certain level of protection for equal treatment, to enhance the equal treatment of indigenous offenders in the criminal justice system. The particular form of that protection is not constitutionalized. And that's what Justice Abella said by analogy in Alliance at paragraphs uh, 33 and 35. What matters isn't the form of the legislation, in this case, uh, conditional sentences being the tool that's available. What matters is the substance of the experience of Indigenous offenders in the criminal justice system. If Parliament wanted to completely repeal conditional sentences, they're free to do so. They would have to either introduce a substitute mechanism designed to address in, uh, the problem of Indigenous over-incarceration to ensure that they weren't making the crisis worse by uh, disconnecting the fire hose uh, in, in the middle of a fire, or they would have to justify that under Section 1. And I agree with Mr. Uh, Wernikowski's submissions on this, that the import of this court's Section 15 jurisprudence since Quebec versus A in 2013 has been to shift the burden increasingly onto the state to justify discrimination at the Section 1 stage. That's not a, a radical result. It means that Section 15 would be treated more like Section 2B, where there's no internal limit on the right on the front end, and more work is to be done at the justificatory end by the state. Now, in this case, uh, it's very difficult for the state to justify the... But you uh, see, that's, that's delineation by justification. That, that methodology is you, if you give an extraordinarily broad sweep to the statement, the scope of a charter right, and then you say, now, state, justify your infringement. And so the whole analysis of the scope of the charter right, it's, it's, it's almost like it disappears. You say, well, that's not really what this case is about. It's about the justification. But logically, you have to ascertain the scope of the right to determine whether there has been an infringement. And what all of this suggests is that the, the, uh, the scope of the right is so broad that, that any, any, any change of this nature would ipso facto constitute an infringement and therefore we're into justification under section one and a critical portion of that is the proportionality component, the balancing, which is a policy-laden exercise in which the judges express their view of policy and essentially are open to substituting their view for that of Parliament. That's the consequence of saying that this is really about Section 1, not about the scope of the right. I don't think the Fraser test to Section 15 write section 15 out. It means there's more work to be done at the section one stage, but section 15 does still play a meaningful role in the analysis. 
really, it's a return to this court's unanimous decision in Andrews of Justice McIntyre for the majority on the Section 15 analysis that any law that draws a distinction based on an enumerated or analogous ground that is discriminatory, which he defined in that case as meaning imposes a, a, a disadvantage or prejudice on the affected group, amounts to a violation of Section 15. You know, where, so this, it, sorry, where this takes us, I apologize for interrupting, Stroward, and your time is limited, but I just got to get this straight in my head. You're taking two pieces of regular legislation, neither of which are constitutionalized, conditional sentences, and um, the provision that says, you know, we'll take all reasonable steps to avoid jail, and particularly in the case of Indigenous uh, offenders. You're taking two sections that are not constitutionalized, they're regular legislation, and it seems to me that what you are doing in the end is really constitutionalizing them and saying you cannot, Parliament, you cannot repeal those, you cannot modify them unless you come up with something different. And that seems to me to be a fundamental concern, certainly for me, because as you know, in Sephardi McCalley, this court said that proportionality in sentencing is not a fundamental principle of justice. So it seems to me that you're taking, you're, you, and in that case, they said parliament can abrogate or modify any existing legislation, including anything in 718. But it seems to me now they can't. You're in effect saying, no, you can't. You can't abrogate, you can't modify unless you put something else in. And, and this is where I'm seeing a, a big dangerous disconnect here. When an analyzing the effect of state action, in this case, enacting section 742.1 sub C and E2, we have to look and measure the effects of that state action against the law as it existed at the time. And that includes by reference to other statutory enactments. I don't think there's anything uh, unusual or novel in that. And it can be seen in this court's decisions in uh, Alliance, most obviously with respect to pay equity provisions, but also in G in Ontario, where the court said, well, hang on uh, to the Attorney General of Ontario, you couldn't just repeal the exit ramps for everybody, that would also be subject to scrutiny under Section 15. Uh, or indeed in the case in CP, when the court looked at the, uh, uh, found that there was a residual liberty interest in uh, a uh, statutory appeal right. The right to an appeal is a creature of statute, but nonetheless, the court looked at that against the background of the existing legislative framework. So I think and your so, answer to Justice Moldaver is yes. That's exactly what, what we're saying. Uh, I, I, I think that's fair. We are saying that not that it constitutionalizes it, that we would resist. It doesn't constitutionalize the form of any particular legislation, but it... Uh, well, until you, legislate, until you legislate it. And, and then you try to amend or modify or repeal it, then in fact it does. Uh, I mean, this is the, this is the ratchet that, that, that you refer to. Then it does undergo a constitutional analysis. I mean, whatever constitutionalizing means, surely it means that it cannot be modified, amended, or repealed without passing a constitutional test other than the old-fashioned first, second, third reading. 
maybe we're just disagreeing about semantics. I'm saying uh, it, it's not constitutionalized in the sense that any change to the provisions has to be justified under section one. We do say it's con it, it would be subject to constitutional scrutiny in the sense that any change uh, triggers an analysis of whether it uh, exacerbates pre-existing disadvantage. Right, right. So, and that may take you to section one or it may not depending on the initial outcome at section 15. But, but yes, but okay. So I think your answer yeah. to Justice Moldaver that, again that, is yes, position. that's exactly what we're doing. Yeah, okay. Can I ask you this? Because in uh, uh, Alliance, the court said that when you've got an ameliorative program, you've got to do it in a way that's not discriminatory. Do you read that case as saying that um, you can't repeal it altogether? Uh, that if you repealed it altogether in circumstances where that was going to throw the protected group back into uh, the uh, experience of unmitigated discrimination, then that, that's how we read uh, Alliance. Um, I, I would add just one thing to that analysis, which is one particular feature of this case, uh, which isn't necessarily present in other cases involving repeal of ameliorative programs. And that's that the discrimination at issue in this case faced by indigenous offenders in the criminal justice system isn't a, a, a phenomenon that, is, that can be divorced from the actions of the state. In that sense, it's not pre-existing in the way of some other uh, types of uh, historical disadvantage might be. The discrimination faced by Indigenous offenders in the criminal justice system in Canada is deeply rooted in state conduct. Uh, and uh, the David Asper Center will address that point further. But there's a distinguishing feature there that uh, for Parliament to repeal an amel uh, or undermine, in this case, an amel ameliorative program like the Gladue framework, where it itself has been a primary contributor to the underlying discrimination that then is going to be unmasked, uh, that that is a particularly serious form of uh, 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 this issue, or it's a stronger case even than the Alliance case was. But just a minute, We're, no one's undoing Gladue here. I mean, your client, uh, with great respect, and, and I know the enormous problems she had, but quite frankly, she got a sentence in large part because of her indigeneity and the background and so on that most people wouldn't come close to. I mean, that's Gladue in work. It says this is a really serious crime, but we're going to take into account the desperate background and problems you've had and continue to have. So I'm gonna give you 18 months, says Justice Hill, as opposed to probably six or seven years for someone else bringing in two kilograms of cocaine. That's Gladue in work. It doesn't undermine the whole Gladue framework. It just takes out one aspect of the, uh, of something that would have been available that is taken away from the conditional sentencing regime because Parliament has made certain choices here that said, look, this is getting out of hand. There's too many people getting conditional sentences that shouldn't be, so.
you're, you're certainly right, Justice Moldaver, that the Gladue framework uh, did significantly come into play in this case in reducing the sentence that uh, Ms. Sharma would have faced. Uh, but it, when it, the restrictions removed one available option, but it was a particularly important option in the context of the Gladue framework because it was the only option for Ms. Sharma that could have resulted in her serving a sentence in the community. And that really is core to section 718.2 sub E because it's a community-based sentence that is uh, the only option that would interrupt the cycle of dislocation of having Ms. Sharma, an intergenerational survivor of residential schools, separated from her young daughter, removed from her community and cultural connections to her community, and uh, avoiding the possibility of giving effect to a form of sentence that is more uh, coherent with Indigenous conceptions of sentencing, as this court held in Gladue. And so we say the conditional sentence is special. It's on its own footing. What do you say about the fact that when conditional sentences were brought in, and in the first case this court dealt with and proved, they effectively said, all right, here are the, here's the situation. And it's got to be the type of crime, it seems to me, that is one of the more lesser crimes that does not sort of impact on the overall, you know, protection of society. It's a relatively, relatively minor. How could we possibly say that bringing in two kilograms of cocaine would ever get you a conditional sentence? Well, if you look at the case that the Crown relies on, which is Mason and, and Hamilton, uh, which indeed had sympathetic facts, but what Justice Doherty said at paragraph 113 of that case wasn't that conditional sentences would never be available for importing cocaine, but that it would not be appropriate in the vast majority of cases. And we accept that. But we say that this case, when looked at uh, in the context of the circumstances uh, of uh, Ms. Sharma, that, that this case did uh, meet that uh, threshold and that it was an appropriate sentence for the Court of Appeal to substitute. Do you have the exact, uh, do you have the exact words of Chief Justice Lemaire in Peru? I don't have them before me, but sort of the basic conditions that were meant to apply as before you could get a conditional sentence. You have those? Uh, I believe he, ha he had those from the uh, text of the legislation itself of having to be consistent with the, the public interest. I'm afraid I don't have the exact passage. Oh, that's okay. <clears throat> but do you, you, uh, agree, you agree that they were primarily designed for, you know, not serious crimes like bringing in two kilograms of cocaine? Uh, they weren't primarily designed for uh, more serious offenses, although as uh, the court pointed out in Peru, there was no presumption against uh, the use of conditional sentences for more serious offenses. And further in Gladue, the court uh, explained and reiterated an IPLE that the, the Gladue analysis applies to all offenses regardless of how serious. Uh, I see I'm running low on time. I'd just like to make one final point, and that's just on the connection between Section 718.2 sub E and Section 742.1. 
my friends take issue with us saying that these provisions are interconnected. Uh, we say it's really uh, not a point that can be seriously disputed. If you look at the uh, history of the provision before Parliament uh, and the statements of this court in Gladue, but uh, more so even in Peru, and uh, we've given you those excerpts in the condensed book, uh, Parliament clearly could have enacted the two provisions separately, as Mr. Rankin pointed out in his uh, th uh, careful analysis of the legislative history. Uh, Parliament, uh, there were predecessor bills that had different uh, constellations of one or not the other, but the important thing is that Parliament chose to enact both provisions together because they work better together to have a directive in 718.2 sub E and then a way to meaningfully carry that out in cases of indigenous offenders like Ms. Sharma in section 742.1. Thank you very uh, subject much. Subject to any further questions, uh, those are my submissions. Thank you. Mr. Rudin. Chief Justice, Justices, um, I want to begin by noting that today is 10 years to the day since this court issued its decision in IPLE. And if we look back a bit further in Gladue, this court began by looking at Canada's incarceration rate per 100,000 people. And at Canada ranked second or third to the US. And as this court said at the time, quote, this cannot instill a sense of pride. Later in that judgment and then in IPLE, indigenous incarceration rates were examined. And as you know, in Gladue, this court said that rates of indigenous overrepresentation were a crisis and in IPLE facing ever increasing rates, this court was at a loss for words. The work of Sprott, Webster and Dube, whose paper is referenced in our factum, offers a new and more accurate term to describe what is happening to indigenous people today. And that term is mass incarceration. The study compared non-indigenous and indigenous rates of incarceration per 100,000. In 2017-18, the non-indigenous rate was 79 a 20% decline from 1996. In contrast, the indigenous rate was 677, a 33% increase from 1996. As Mr. Elward noted, indigenous Canadians are now nine times more likely to be in prison than non-indigenous Canadians. And the indigenous incarceration rate, if we compare that to the US rate for the same year, the indigenous rate is actually slightly higher. America is the leading example of mass incarceration in the industrialized world. The fact that indigenous rates are even higher than the US means that mass incarceration is the only term that can adequately describe what is happening to indigenous people. And to paraphrase this court from Gladue, this fact can only instill a sense of shame. Now the appellate states that the Court of Appeals decision in this matter impinges on the doctrine of parliamentary supremacy. And there's been a lot of discussion here today about the fact that somehow this decision will prevent Parliament from ever increasing maximum sentences. And we say that is incorrect. And Justice Moldaver, I want to specifically refer to Friesen in this discussion as well. Now, firstly, this case is about a law that requires a judge to impose a disproportionate sentence of incarceration on an Indigenous offender because the proportionate non-custodial sentence, a conditional sentence is prohibited. Now this does not mean that parliament can never raise the maximum sentence. And we point out in our factum that in 2019, the 
over 125 summary conviction offenses were raised. The maximum was raised to two years less a day. And nothing makes that unconstitutional. And the reason is because the option of a conditional sentence always remains. It's not the case that indigenous person who receives an eight month sentence for a summary conviction offense that previously had a maximum of six months could now bring a charter challenge because the eight month sentence would be the proportionate sentence. What matters is that the judge doing the sentencing has a CSO as an option if it is appropriate. And that's the significance. That's what's important in this case. As long as the CSO is a possible sentence, there's no problem. Now, Justice Moore, they were in Friesen. This court clearly said courts needed to take the issue of sentencing for child sexual offenses more seriously. But at paragraph 92 of Friesen, this court said that this did not mean that the Gladue process was attenuated and it did not mean that if it was an appropriate sentence, a CSO is not possible. So this is not preventing parliament from raising maximum sentences, not at all. And it doesn't prevent this court from raising sentencing ranges. What it means is we have to be concerned about ensuring that where a proportionate sentence for an indigenous person requires a CSO, that that's available. And my last point in this is the other thing we can't forget, and, and the Crown used the term in their factum, forever restricting Parliament. To say that Parliament can never do anything as a result of this decision assumes that the mass incarceration of Indigenous people will always be with us. And we refuse to believe that. And we refuse to believe that that will be the case. This Court and Parliament has said it will not be the case. And once systemic discrimination vanishes from the criminal justice system, then Parliament is free to do whatever it wants. But asking that Parliament, uh, that the legislation not exacerbate existing systemic discrimination against Indigenous people, we submit is not too much to ask. Thank, Thank you, you miigwech Nyawe. Thank you very much. Ms. Avatashi Green. Thank you, Justices. Yes, go ahead. Thank you. It is not often that perspectives from Nunavut are heard in this honorable court. And so it is for me a great honor to present one such perspective today. That is the perspective of defense counsel working on the front lines of justice in Nunavut. Our submissions are directed towards the second step of the section 15 analysis. For us, the issues on this appeal are not abstract or theoretical. Nunavut's population is 85% Inuit, and Inuit make up an even larger percentage of those embroiled in the criminal justice system. Every day, the Nunavut Court of Justice imposes sentences on Inuit offenders. To do so fairly, Nunavut's judges must apply Gladue including by considering the unique sentencing options that are appropriate given the Inuit identity of the people appearing before them and the relevant Inuit societal values at play in their communities. Yet our court's ability to do this is often undermined by the limits to the conditional sentence. 
regime that are at issue on this appeal. Since the Safe Streets and Communities Act passed into law, the percentage of sentences in Nunavut that are custodial has increased by 5%, while the percentage of sentences that are conditional has decreased by nearly the same amount. In other words, as access to the sentencing tool aimed at remedying the over-incarceration of Indigenous Canadians has been curtailed, the actual incarceration of Inuit offenders in Nunavut has increased. Today, Nunavut has the highest incarceration rate in Canada, more than five times the national rate. Of course, these statistics are only one measure of this law's discriminatory impact on Inuit Nunavumiit. Nunavut's colonial history, vast geography, and robust Inuit legal order provide important context for understanding how the impugned legislation undermines Gladue and thereby per perpetuates the disadvantages and discrimination faced by Inuit Nunavumiit. The recent colonial history in Nunavut was manifest in large part through forced settlement of Inuit, a physical severing of the people from the land, which is echoed in the removal of Inuit offenders from their home communities when they are sent to jail. Nearly three quarters of Nunavumiit live at least one prohibitively expensive flight from the closest correctional facility. This means that jail sentences that could, absent this legislation, be served in the offender's home community, instead physically remove offenders from their support networks, including the elders and counseling opportunities unique to each community that are so often essential for rehabilitation. The legislation has an outsized impact in Nunavut, which like other predominantly indigenous jurisdictions does not have a functional intermittent sentencing program, does not have culturally appropriate institutional programming and does not have meaningful reintegration supports. Limiting the availability of, sentence, of conditional sentences also interferes with the exercise of Inuit Kayema to Kayemit, what is often translated as what Inuit have always known to be true. Just as the impugned legislation frustrates the exercise of judicial discretion, it also narrows the space available for the exercise of Inuit societal values, which have traditionally privileged community involvement in dealing with wrongdoers. That involvement, which shares characteristics with what is elsewhere called restorative justice, is central to the remedial purpose of Section 718.2 sub E in Nunavut. Against this backdrop, the Legal Services Board of Nunavut asks this honorable court to affirm the importance of conditional sentences to the Gladue framework. Additionally, for those of us standing where the rubber meets the road on Gladue, it is time for stronger direction from this court. Sentencing judges should be required to justify every decision to incarcerate an Indigenous offender if a conditional sentence is legally available. And the Crown, rather than the offender, should bear the onus of establishing what is reasonable in the circumstances. Finally, it is our position that determining what is reasonable in the circumstances must include consideration of the relevant Indigenous legal orders, available resources, and geographic realities. Thank you very much. Thank you for hearing my submissions. Thank you. Promise Olm Skinner.
Thank you. Good afternoon, Chief Justice and Justices. Um, I will focus on four reasons why the trial judge uh, was wrong to hold that uh, the restrictions on conditional sentences are constitutional because, as he believed, uh, suspended sentences were a, quote, al uh, appropriate alternative. Uh, there's four reasons why this is wrong, and the first is uh, that it's a legal error to treat a suspended sentence and a conditional sentence um, as the same or to replace one with the other, and to quote this court uh, respectfully, um, to do so would be uh, absurd, um, as this court noted in, in proof. Uh, significantly and um, not acknowledged, I would argue, uh, by the Crown today is that um, the difference it, objectives, sentencing objectives that uh, exist between a conditional sentence and a suspended sentence um, are a, a suspended sentence is focused on rehabilitation and, and probationary terms are uh, meant to help rehabilitate the offender and conditional sentence um, is meant to denounce and, and deter. Um, so uh, in the leading case on the, this particular issue, Vong uh, at paragraph 62 says, uh, the court is not enabled to impose an unfit sentence in an attempt to replicate an unavailable sentencing option. A conditional sentence is a jail sentence that is served in the community. A suspended sentence and probation are not. Uh, our factum focuses on a number of cases that speak to this issue uh, at paragraph nine. And um, significantly, there are a number of courts that say, you know, if I could give you a conditional sentence, I would, but I can't, sorry, I have to send you to jail. Um, and uh, as recently as um, uh, 2019, prior to Sharma, uh, cases are, were unfortunately sending people to jail uh, when they wished that they had an alternative. Um, moving to my uh, second point, uh, the trial judge unfortunately um, ignores the fact that where conditional sentences aren't available, courts are not giving suspended sentences instead. First, because that's not legal, and second, Suspended sentences are only uh, uh, reserved for the rarest of cases when we're talking about offenses under under the impunity provision. Well, so it's sorry, only uh, sorry to, to interrupt, but you said their suspended sentences aren't legal. <clears throat> I don't know that they're not legal. I think that, <clears throat> and, and I don't know, are there cases where somebody's tried <clears throat> for a suspended sentence in the circumstances of the uh, of the um, you know, Ms. Sharma and, and, and gone through all this again. I mean, you know, parole goes back 20 some years or whatever. Maybe what you're really saying is that we should rethink our sentencing uh, rules, shall we say, as to what conditional sentences can and cannot be used for in the context of an indigenous offender or some other group that has been, you know, badly, badly treated. I mean, has anybody tried this? Uh, yes, Justice Maldiver, you said conditional sentences just there, but did you mean suspended sentences? Should, like, should we be looking at the way that sentence, suspended sentences are allowed to be used? Is that, was that your question? I'm just, you're, you're quite right that Imperial said we really shouldn't be using suspended sentences because this conditional sentence is real punishment, going at home, staying at home, right. that's real punishment. But, right. but, you know, that is court-made law in its own way. Has anybody tried to say, wait a second, we need to review that in light of the 
gross disproportionality of the number of Indigenous people in jail. Take a look at this again, Supreme Court of Canada, and see if you didn't get it wrong in Pruel. Or not wrong, but things have changed, so make an adjustment. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you, Justice Mulder, and what, what I would say then is um, you have, the court has a number of uh, cases, you know, upward of about 60 cases that I reviewed about uh, what the jurisprudence looks like on this issue across the country. So if this court is prepared to um, opine on that and to direct sentencing judges across the country to um, use suspended sentences differently than they have been um, sort of directed to up to this point, I, I certainly would invite the court to do that. Uh, and I, I think we could do that in this case because we have this issue before you. Um, and one point I just want to say about something you said, Justice Moldover, that uh, referring to Ms. Sharma's uh, circumstances, uh, that they are, they don't come close to anything that most people would experience. And, and so the court took that into consideration in giving her a, uh, a, an 18 month sentence. I wholeheartedly agree with you that most people's experiences will never come close to this. However, the most distressing issue that I, I view with respect to the, the material and the factum and on this point, Your Honor, uh, Justice Moldover, is that um, the courts are saying because we see these tragic circumstances so often, we, we are now learning more and more about colonialism and the effects and we're, we're reviewing polluted reports and we're seeing these tragic circumstances. They are tragic and sympathetic, but they are not, and I'm quoting a, a Manitoba Court of Appeal decision from 2019, they are not so unusual as to be exceptional. And so therefore, no, you can't have a suspended sentence. And that's uh, McIver, that, that, that case is quote, uh, paragraph 11 of our um, material, Justice Waldemar. So right. I agree, most people in Canada would never come close to such tragic experiences as Ms. Sharma. But as an Indigenous person myself, an Indigenous lawyer serving a lot of Indigenous people, uh, I see these circumstances regularly. And so unfortunately, so does the courts. And that's because of colonialism and systemic discrimination. So the way that the jurisprudence works right now on suspended sentences is that folks who have these tragic circumstances are precluded from receiving the suspended sentences because the, the case law says, and the test is, you have to be the, I, the I think you've answered, you've answered my question. Thank you so much. I think you Thank know, you. Thank you, Justice Mr. Thank you, Chief Justice. Our submissions will focus on Section 1 of the Charter and particularly on the balancing exercise of the positive and negative effects. Ultimately, what the Association submits is that uh, the violations significantly, uh, or the negative uh, effects of the violations significantly outweigh the positive ones. Essentially, the positive or salutary effects are only theoretical in this case because no evidence has been submitted from the appellant or the attorneys general that would demonstrate that the Safe Streets and Communities Act uh, and its violations actually um, met any positive objective. 
So our conclusion is that we can only identify negative effects. Mr. Raymond, listening to these submissions this morning, you would have heard that there was a certain overlap between some of the arguments under Section 15 and Section 1. How does that affect your analysis? Well, in fact, from our point of view, there are two possibilities that the court sees that there are violations of Section 15, which would have an impact on Section 1, and there can also be um, effects on Section 7. Yes, there is some overlap, but what we've identified is that if you start from the premise that Section 15 has been violated, then the impugned provisions only continue to perpetuate the systemic discrimination that exists. And for which uh, conditional sentences were supposed to improve the situation. Now, one of the things that we've identified is that regardless of whether the legislative objective is to maintain the integrity of the justice system or in a more concrete way, to ensure that people who commit serious crimes receive prison sentences, regardless, by withdrawing the conditional sentence option, we end up with people being sentenced to non-prison sentences, non-custodial sentences. So they may have a suspended sentence, for example. So in fact, the tools are more limited By withdrawing conditional sentences, you end up potentially having judges uh, having to choose between overly severe or overly lax sentences. And that does not help the integrity of the justice system, and it doesn't ensure that those who commit serious uh, crimes actually receive prison sentences. Now. I would also like to draw the court's attention to the uh, criteria of minimal impairment. There's been no demonstration from the part of the Attorney General or the appellant that there might be other methods uh, that would meet the same objectives with minimal impairment. The appellant said that uh, Parliament could have found other solutions but that they didn't uh, meet the objectives. However, that has not been proven in the lower courts. There could have been other solutions that might have been available to Parliament. For example, in sentencing, uh, one could encourage judges to look at um, the presumption that anything is subject to a 14-year sentence or less uh, could be modified based on the circumstances. And that could be the case for Indigenous uh, offenders or other situations where individuals uh, could uh, have different sentences. So. 
that uh, ends my submissions. Thank you. Good afternoon, Mr. Chief Justice, Justices. On behalf of the Criminal Trial Lawyers Association, I wish to address a narrow point that's been touched on by the appellants and respondent submissions before you. It harkens back to the respondent submission that the breadth of definition of the many offenses precluded by these provisions is such that the absence of CSOs means the court cannot impose a proportionate sentence. To my mind, that com question comes down to, does Section 15 protect individuals from what the law is or what the law ought to be? And I believe uh, Justice Moldaver has just hit the nail on the head with respect to that difficulty in the application of suspended sentences, because the current pronouncements from this honorable court and the law as it stands seem to indicate that there is what I call a black hole of sentencing between the su suspended sentence and real jail, which results in denunciation and deterrence, overwhelming consideration, and not allowing these types of sentences to be imposed. So I hope as representative of the CTLA to enlighten the court about how in practice, these two provisions are resulting in Indigenous people going to jail despite significant factors which influence their moral blameworthiness, ought to have resulted in special consideration, and that it was due to their Indigenous lived experience. Calling back to Justice Casares question to Ms. Conroy earlier, the CTLA asserts that there are not substitutions for incarceration available to Indigenous people in Alberta. The case of Ms. Giroux was referenced in our factum. Ms. Giroux, of course, carried drugs in her purse for the driver of a motor vehicle who was engaged in drug trafficking. She didn't know what she was carrying or how much. She was 26 years of age, had no high school education, was working two jobs to care for her two young daughters as a single mother, and still continuing to upgrade her education. She'd witnessed her parents drink and use drugs and fight with one another. She'd experienced physical, emotional, and mental abuse at the hands of her common law partner, and she was bullied and suffered racism. When she entered a guilty plea and was sentenced to an intermittent term of imprisonment by the sentencing judge, that judge recognized that special consideration needed to be given to Canada's history of Canada's treatment of Indigenous people, Ms. Giroux's diminished moral culpability, and her rehabilitation and reintegration potential. Unfortunately, all that forethought was for naught because the Alberta Court of Appeal sent her to prison anyway. In theory, because such a departure from the starting port could not be justified despite her significant GLADU factors, and because non-Indigenous offenders has recently been sentenced to higher sentences. Proportionality, so-called, was allowed to rule the day. This court is well aware that my associ association has argued before it many times that the rigid application of starting points in Alberta has precluded individualized sentencing. We're grateful for the court's strong words in Peronto that starting points are non-binding guidelines and that sentencing must remain an individualized exercise. But in my respectful submission, none of this is an answer to the unavailability of CSOs for two reasons. As I previously mentioned, the large penalty gap created by the removal of CSOs results in Indigenous offenders falling into the black hole of denunciation and deterrence from which their GLADU factors cannot properly be taken into account. And second, even if an offender is able to convince a sentencing court that a non-custodial or intermittent disposition could meet the purposes and principles of sentencing, that decision is vulnerable on appeal because the Court of Appeal frequently reweighs GLADU factors, such as to diminish their mitigating effect, in particular where a starting point is engaged. 
In my province, where appellate guidance sets denunciation and deterrence as a primary factor in sentencing, real jail results. There is no different process for Indigenous people as mandated by Gladue and Ippoli as the appellant admits there must be. That's why Ms. Huskins and Ms. Giroux were sentenced to nine months in custody for their minor traffickings of cocaine. It's why Mr. Lorundell and Mr. Corbier had to be jailed for a year in spite of the difficulties which arose from their Indigenous heritage and brought them into contact with the law. I see that my time is coming to a close, so I will uh, support two outcomes. If the, this honourable court views the respondent and the Ontario Court of Appeals position as accurate, that there are no available alternatives other than the CSO, which will adequately ameliorate mass incarceration. The other alternative, as raised by Justice Moldaver, is a statement from this honourable court that will broadcast in no uncertain terms that Indigenous peoples are entitled to the benefit of an individualized sentencing approach as dictated in Gladue and Ippoli, and either Section 742.1 sub C and 742.1 sub E double I discriminate against Indigenous people in their application by precluding those options, or the suspended sentence must become a valid tool to address denunciation and deterrence. Thank you very much. Thank you. The court will take its uh, break for lunch. We'll be back at 1.30. Please be seated. Ms. Van Viltenberg. Good afternoon, Chief Justice, Justices. My colleague Eric Gattardi and I represent the Canadian Bar Association. We submit that the rights of Indigenous peoples stand at yet another inflection point. It has been 25 years since the enactment of Section 718.2e of the Criminal Code over 20 years since Gladu, and 10 since IP Lee. And there has been a crescendo in the jurisprudence when it comes to this court's recognition of systemic discrimination against Indigenous peoples and the role of sentencing judges in redressing it. However, restrictions on CSOs are uniquely positioned to interrupt that momentum. The appellant in this case seeks to remove the conditional sentence order from the remedial context in which it is situated. But section 718.2e and GLADU in our submission are central to the question of equality for Indigenous peoples in sentencing. The CBA makes three points. 
Our first point is that 718.2e of the Criminal Code has a quasi-constitutional dimension. What does, that, what, does that, what does that mean? So this court has recognized that some legislation is quasi-constitutional. And there's, it, the term has been around for over 50 years. I know, but it's I still don't know what it means, so maybe you can help me. I think to summarize it, what our position is, is that Section 718.2e should be the touchstone of this court's analysis in Section 15. And when assessing the two steps of the Section 15 test, what we're really looking at is if judges are able to apply the framework set out in 718.2e and GLADU. And our position is that the conditional sentence order is uniquely, serves a uniquely, uh, if you look at its functional effect, it's uniquely tied to that legislative imperative and must be considered uh, when conducting a Section 15 analysis. So it's constitutional. It's not, well, it's got a constitutional dimension to it. And I mean, in some of these cases, and they're, they're cited in our factum, but things like human rights instruments and privacy legislation have been considered, legislative imp, uh, instruments elaborating a constitutional right are considered when the court conducts a constitutional analysis. And that's really all we're saying. So, you know, whether we use the title quasi-constitutional or just recognize that what section in 718.2e and GLADU are doing are they're ensuring substantive equality for Indigenous people in sentencing. And paragraph 87 of GLADU says that judges, to sentence Indigenous peoples equally, judges must take into account their difference. And so in our submission, that should be the crux of the inquiry. Are judges frustrated from being able to actually implement that imperative that's set out in both the legislation and our case law? And our submission is that the CSO is, uh, it does impair that constitution or that, that legislative imperative. And I think that in, in response to Justice Moldaver had a question about, you know, where do we draw the line if we are concerned that any, any uh, change to the criminal law that will result in more incarceration, uh, <coughs> will that necessarily constitute a Section 15 violation? Uh, our response would be no, and we would again, recommend that the court consider section 718.2e. Uh, it doesn't mandate a particular result. It doesn't mandate that somebody won't get an, a carceral sentence. But what it does mandate is a methodology. And it does mandate that the circumstances cited in IP Lee should be considered uh, and given due effect uh, to construct a proportionate sentence for an indigenous offender. And what we're concerned with is the blanket ban that has been placed on conditional sentences for a large band of offenders and the disproportionate impacts that it has on Indigenous offenders in particular. And so with my short remaining time, I'd just like to mention that in line with the submissions the CBA has previously made, we submit that a safety valve, uh, similar safety valve analysis could be employed here to provide an answer to this question of um, where do we draw the line in Section 15? What this case was really concerned with is judges not having ju residual judicial discretion to avoid disproportionate sentences for Indigenous peoples in particular. And that's what we'd like this court to consider when they conduct the Section 15 analysis. Thank you. Ms. Eleanor Sunchild QC.
Good afternoon. The Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations represents 74 First Nations in Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan has one of the highest incarceration rates for Indigenous people, if not the, one of, if not the highest rate in Canada. Saskatchewan also had more Indian residential schools than any other province. There were 24 schools at the height of the Indian residential school era, and the last school to close in the country was in Saskatchewan in 1997. These two characteristics are not inseparable. Residential schools disrupted Indigenous families and communities and led to personal and intergenerational trauma. The scale of this trauma continues to be uncovered as the graves of the children at the are unearthed at former Indian residential school sites across this country. And this is only one facet of a complex colonial history that included Indian day schools, the 60s scoop, the past system, land dispossession, uh, to name some of the colonial practices that have harmed Indigenous people. Saskatchewan also has one of the fastest growing populations of Indigenous peoples in Canada. So an ever-growing number of Indigenous people who lived this trauma find themselves before the court facing sentencing and possibly facing incarceration. A sentencing regime with limited options is not of assistance to many Indigenous people in situations like Ms. Sharma. It has been, it has far too long failed to reflect restorative justice principles unique to Indigenous people and essentially and essential to addressing colon, colonialism and its effects in a meaningful and appropriate way. When we talk about colonial trauma, we are talking about the removal of individuals from culture, community, spirituality, and identity. The individual and the community are impacted by this loss. And when we talk about restorative justice, we are talking about a process of individual and community healing where one is restored in the community by the community in accordance with spiritual and traditional protocols and teachings. Indigenous people survived without jails. Indigenous people always had the structures in place to address harm caused by members of their community. We still have ways to deal with these offenses in our communities. They existed long before the first court in this country and they worked long before this case. Indigenous legal traditions and restorative justice could assist Ms. Sharma and countless others in serving a period of incarceration within the community with their families with their elders, with their supports, and with their restorative justice practices through the use of conditional sentences. This is true, truly what restorative justice was meant to do, to assist in healing of the offender while allowing the Indigenous person the opportunity to heal within their community using principles such as healing, reconciliation, and reintegration of the offender within their community. Restorative justice is a process of healing and returning one to their community with the opportunity to thrive. Conditional sentences are a tool for this. Incarceration is not. Without this particular tool of restorative justice to promote healing and reintegration in a culturally appropriate way, the justice system will continue to fail Indigenous people. There will be a continuing gross incarceration of Indigenous people in Canadian jails and correctional centres. Just like residential schools, Indian day schools and the 60s scoop, it is a system that continues to disrupt communities. FSIN submits this is, that this Honourable Court has a very real opportunity here to protect and strengthen the ability of sentencing judges to achieve restorative justice because 
conditional sentence are, are one of the only alternatives to incarceration to combat these high rates of Indigenous people ending up in, in, in facilities. Ms. Sharma is very similar to many Indigenous women who find themselves before the court. She has, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, she has struggled, <coughs> she has struggled and suffered <coughs> serious effects, excuse me, <coughs> she has struggled <coughs> serious effects of intergenerational trauma. <coughs> She also clearly suffered childhood trauma, something that a sentencing judge <clears throat> can take into account <coughs> and apply at CSO if it is part of the sentencing range. The court should have the option to sentence Ms. Sharma <coughs> to it, CSO, using the principles of restorative justice. Therefore, the FSIN submits that the concerned sections of the criminal code violate section 15 of the charter of rights and freedoms and cannot be saved by Section 1. Thank you. Merci Thank you. And Thank you very much. Mr. Vincent Larochelle. Mr. Vincent Larochelle. Chief Justice, Justices, let me begin with this seemingly simple observation on behalf of the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association. Canada's constitution is presently blind to one of the greatest problems facing one of its most vulnerable groups. In 1998, this court observed that there is evidence that widespread racism has translated into systemic discrimination in the criminal justice system. Only this morning, Justice Karakatsanis observed that no one seriously disputes that there is systemic discrimination in the criminal justice system. I might even borrow the wise words of Leonard Cohen Cohen in describing this situation, everybody knows that the dice are loaded. For the BCCLA, the concern here is that Section 7 will not do. Section 15 of the Constitution needs to recognize and detect this problem. This court must create a space for dialogue between Parliament and the court system that addresses the concerns faced by Indigenous defendants in the criminal justice system on a daily basis. Justice Rowe, if I may, earlier in these proceedings, you worried about the potential scope of the sec Section 15 right that might be discovered here. And really, it's not so much the scope of the right that's problematic, it's the scope of the problem. And if this court were to open the dialogue under Section 15, then My of course point is not that the problem is lacking in seriousness. My problem is whose responsibility and authority is it to deal with it under our constitutional structure. You seem to be saying simply, if Parliament and the executive and the legislatures of the provinces do not respond effectively, then that gives rise to both a responsibility and an authority on the courts to supervise them such that the outcome is more favorable. This That's court really where we park company. Apologies. This court is the watchdog of the Constitution. No other, no, no other institution in this country will be able to uphold Section 15 in the face of the situation faced by Indigenous defendants. And, and really, allowing this claim to proceed under the Section 15 
frame of analysis would amount to really a, a healthy dose of self-reflection and intellectual honesty. This court has repeated time and time again that there is systemic discrimination in the criminal justice system. And here I echo the words of Justice Karakatsanis, and I, I also believe the preoccupations of Justice Kaziraire, what the vulnerable minority of indigenous defendants in the criminal justice system is entitled to fundamentally is a justification for any action that deepens the gap that they face in the criminal justice system. And the means by which that justification can be provided to them, at least in the legal context, is through a section one justification. The problem is huge. The problem is vast and complex. No one understands the full measure of this problem. But the beginning of a solution can be found through section one concerns being addressed by the government in these types of cases. Now, the BCCLA's submission is essentially an invitation for this court to cast aside the fig leaf, not to tiptoe around the section 15 issue, and essentially to find that in view of the crisis proportions of overrepresentation of Aboriginal defendants, Indigenous defendants, and all aspects of the criminal justice system, there is no problem, there is no issue in recognizing that a law which relates to the operation of that system will necessarily disproportionately impact them. The key will be in a section one analysis as well as in the, se the second part of the section 15 analysis, namely whether it has the effect of perpetuating a historical di disadvantage. But there, there seems to be a little bit of an irony in the government pointing to a system that's discriminatory and, and the effects of which are difficult to isolate and understand and say, well, we can't recognize the discrimination here because if we did, we would recognize too much discrimination. But that's exactly what the, the, this court's jurisprudence should enable lower courts to do is to detect discrimination in the criminal justice system. And perhaps th through acknowledgement of the disproportionate impact that laws relating to the operation of the criminal justice system will have on indigenous defendants will also be able to put an end to your struggles with causation, Justice Brown, hearkening back to the words of Justice Abella in the Fraser case, uh, which were so aptly put to the appellant by Justice Martin at paragraph 71. It is not for the vulnerable group to show that a law has created the backdrop, the social backdrop leading to its vulnerability. With that in mind, I thank the court for its attention and I close my submissions on behalf of the BCCLA. Thank you. Merci beaucoup. Chris Rudnicki. Thank you, Chief Justice, and good afternoon, Justices. Along with my colleague, Teresa Doncor, I appear today on behalf of the Queen's Prison Law Clinic. The Queen's Prison Law Clinic protects the rights of our clients, all of whom are prisoners and many of whom are Indigenous, through frontline legal services and public interest litigation. Our thesis before this court is that the scandal of Indigenous mass incarceration in this country has two components. The first component is the disproportionate quantity of Indigenous incarceration, and the second is the disproportionately harsh quality of that incarceration. Just as it is notorious that Indigenous persons are incarcerated at much higher rates than the general population, it is notorious that an Indigenous person's uh, experience of jail is more dangerous, more isolating, less rehabilitative, and less free. This second component of Indigenous mass incarceration is the subject of my submissions today. We say that systemic inequality in the conditions of Indigenous imprisonment is centrally important to deciding whether the impugned provisions amount to adverse effects discrimination. 
While in our factum, we focus on the second branch of the section 15 test, it should be remembered that the two branches are not, quote, impermeable silos, unquote, and that there is clearly potential for overlap in adverse effects cases. This court may also find our submissions useful at the first branch of the Tapetat test. This court has repeatedly held that proportionality is the essence of a just sanction. Proportionality in sentencing, we say, is substantive equality in action. Just as substantive equality demands that courts attend to the concrete material impacts of a challenged law in adjudicating an equality claim, proportionality demands that sentencing judges consider the concrete material impacts of a proposed sanction in crafting a fit sentence. Like offenders must be treated alike. If the experience of imprisonment is going to be more punitive for a particular offender, then that offender is no longer like the others and their sentence may have to be reduced or served in the community as a result. Indigenous offenders fall into this category. They are unlike any other offender. As this court held in Ewart, the gap between indigenous and non-indigenous offenders has continued to widen on nearly every indicator of correctional performance. To take just three examples, indigenous prisoners are much more likely to be placed in maximum security facilities than non-indigenous prisoners. This means less liberty within the institution and less access to rehabilitative programs and community programs. Indigenous prisoners are also more likely to be placed in segregation than non-indigenous prisoners. And indigenous prisoners are more likely to be subject to use of force by correctional authorities. This remains true even when controlling for variables like age, risk, security level, gender, or sentence length. These inequalities are worse still for indigenous women, like Ms. Sharma, who face multiple and compounding forms of inequality in corrections. That is why in its 2020-21 annual report, the Office of the Correctional Investigator dedicated an entire section to the conditions of indigenous women's confinement, warning that they are overrepresented in the places and circumstances with the greatest restrictions on liberty. Conditional sentences permit sentencing judges to respond to these conditions. Where there is evidence that the sentence to be served will be harsher than it would be for persons convicted of identical offenses, a sentencing judge can permit the sentence to be served conditionally. By restricting the availability of the conditional sentence without any replacement, Parliament deprived sentencing judges of an essential tool for crafting proportionate sentences for Indigenous offenders. We say they stymied substantive equality in action. As Aboriginal Legal Services writes, sending an Indigenous offender to jail when jail is not the proportionate response clearly exacerbates the crisis of overrepresentation and contributes to the mass incarceration of your, Indigenous Your argument people. seems to come down to this, that substantive equality requires proportionality in sentencing. Is that accurate? No, uh, Justice Rowe. Our argument is that uh, substantive equality requires that judges be permitted to craft a proportionate sentence. Um, that doesn't uh, oblige the sentencing judge to uh, impose any particular sentence, but it does require that they have the tools necessary to be able to impo impose a proportionate sentence, and that includes consideration of the conditions of confinement. If this court concludes that the impugned provisions maintain or deepen the discriminatory groups along with existing please. disadvantage already troubles, 
then it should have no difficulty finding an infringement in Section 15. Thank you. Mr. Nobleman. Chief Justice, Justices, the HIV and AIDS Legal Clinic Ontario and the HIV Legal Network wish to focus on the unconstitutional effects of the conditional sentence restrictions under Section 7 of the Charter. We will proceed in the following way. First, I will briefly describe the context of the criminalization of HIV non-disclosure. Then I will make one submission. Section 742.1c is overbroad when it results in more custodial sentences for the least serious conduct, as I will demonstrate with an example from HIV non-disclosure case law. Under the framework established by this court in Mayvior, people living with HIV are prosecuted for aggravated sexual assault for not disclosing their HIV status to their sexual partner prior to sexual activity that carries a realistic possibility of transmission. Aggravated sexual assault is captured by Section 742.1c because of its maximum sentence of life imprisonment. Uh, to address your concern, Justice Moldaver, about suspended sentences, suspended sentences are effectively not an option for this offence, and the Court of Appeal in this case at paragraph 171 uh, recognized that suspended sentences don't achieve the denunciation and deterrence necessary for this type of offence, and we are not aware of any case where a court has assigned a suspended sentence maybe, for aggravated You may be right, assault. you may be right, but I thought that I was hearing that really what you need more in these cases, especially with Indigenous uh, women, is not punishment. You need, you, you need uh, all the rehabilitation aspects, the remedial aspects. And so, so no one said that suspended sentences can't be used for that. It's just that, you know, it's going to be, have to be an exceptional case. And maybe this is. I don't know, but I'm just telling you that uh, I don't see that suspended sentences have been completely taken off the table. I think that appellate courts are saying that, but whether it's right or not, I don't know. You may be correct that they haven't completely been taken off the table, but I can certainly tell you that they've not been available in aggravated sexual assault cases for HIV non-disclosure. And we know that individuals, including Indigenous individuals, have requested them uh, in lieu of conditional sentences. The federal government has acknowledged that HIV non-disclosure is over-criminalized in Canada and convictions can and do take place where there's no transmission of HIV, no intent to transmit HIV, and zero or negligible risk of HIV transmission. And these prosecutions particularly affect Indigenous, Black, and Two-Spirit LGBTQ people. Now turning to our submission on overbreadth, Section 742.1c casts a wide net. This provision is so broad that it captures conduct uh, it captures offenses and underlying criminal conduct that bear no relation to its purpose of ensuring that individuals who commit serious offenses receive custodial sentences. The gravity of an offense cannot be divorced from the conduct underlying the offense, so what this court refers to as the subjective gravity and freezen at paragraph 96. And HIV non-disclosure cases are illustrative of section 742.1c's overbreadth because the operative charge captures conduct that can certainly be serious, 
but much of the conduct at issue in HIV non-disclosure cases falls at the least serious end of the spectrum. And this is where conditional sentences may be fit and appropriate. In our fact, in beginning at paragraph 10, we describe HIV non-disclosure cases where courts found conditional sentences to be appropriate, including the case of JM, in which a woman living with HIV pleaded guilty to aggravated sexual assault for not disclosing her HIV status during a single sexual encounter with each of two complainants, and the court found her failure to disclose was directly related to a mental health condition, which was subsequently treated. HIV was not transmitted. She received a conditional sentence of 12 months, and she would not be eligible for that sentence today. Attorneys general in several jurisdictions have recognized the broad spectrum of conduct underlying HIV non-disclosure cases and have directed crowns to no longer prosecute cases involving the lowest risk of transmission. But in other Canadian jurisdictions, these cases can still be prosecuted as aggravated sexual assault. So the upshot of this state of affairs is that an offense which carries so little risk of harm that it is no longer prosecuted in some jurisdictions is at the same time under 742.1c considered an inherently serious offense that can never warrant a conditional sentence. And this undermines clarity and consistency. And seeing my time is up, uh, I will uh, conclude by saying the conditional sentence restrictions tie the hands of sentencing judges in a way so that the burden of unfit sentences falls systemically on Indigenous, Black, and Two-Spirit LGBTQ individuals in the context of HIV non-disclosure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Alisa Lombard. Good afternoon, Chief Justice, Justices, friends and learned friends. Along with Ms. Charette, I appear today on behalf of the Women's Legal Education Action Fund. LEAP submissions are premised upon four primary points. First, substantive equality and the imperative of reconciliation require the acknowledgement of history and circumstances in the equality analysis. This court and the Court of Appeal have expressly endorsed a substantive equality approach to Section 15 charter claims. The imperatives of reconciliation dovetail with a substantive equality approach to Section 15, which takes into account historical injustice when assessing whether a measure treats people differentially or reinforces existing disadvantages. Both pull in the same direction and support the availability of conditional sentences for Indigenous people, where possible, based on the principled objective of ameliorative results. The criminal justice system is historically complicit in and is a more modern location of what this court has called staggering injustice and systemic discrimination against Indigenous people. Indigenous women have been uniquely negatively impacted by their interactions with the criminal justice system. While the term reconciliation has been potentially overused and certainly misinterpreted, we submit that its core precepts have been acknowledged by this court and are useful and relevant to this case. Reconciliation is relevant when considering changes to how Canada punishes citizens from the Indigenous population. In light of the complexity of the criminal justice system and the dark era of colonialism, that reconciliation seeks to move through. Secondly, we submit that the criminal code provisions must be interpreted purposively in line with the advancement of reconciliation. In Daniels, this court indicated that reconciliation is a goal of parliament and that it can and should guide the interpretation of constitutional provisions. 
It stated that recent political developments and commissions, and I quote, all indicate that reconciliation with all of Canada's Aboriginal peoples is Parliament's goal, end quote. The recent passage of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People Act reinforces the conclusion that Parliament has reconciliation as a goal. Parliament now, I think what the court has the said is that in giving effect to 35.1, reconciliation as an objective has to be, uh, 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 has to motivate it and has to guide it. That's its constitutional role. What you're saying now seems to be that reconciliation as a policy goal has somehow been constitutionalized throughout the whole, every single provision of the Constitution now has to be animated and uh, interpreted by reference to reconciliation. I don't think this court has said that. Thank you, Justice Rowe. Uh, I would refer you to paragraph 74, wherein this court stated, uh, paragraph 74, rather, of the Gladue decision, wherein this court stated, and I quote, it is appropriate to attempt to craft the sentencing process and the sanctions imposed in accordance with the Aboriginal perspective. Reconciliation, as Leaf views it, is the, the centerpiece to section 35, which would allow uh, that Aboriginal perspective to to be propelled, to animate it. And so we do see it uh, as the governing ethos uh, in most, if not all, matters involving Indigenous people. Yes. And so we say that Parliament intended to fulfill substantive equality and advance reconciliation with the 1996 reforms. This requires, at a minimum, an assessment of the full impact of any changes to the 1996 provisions in terms of the ways in which Indigenous people, and specifically Indigenous women, may be harmed. It also requires assessment of the impact of changes on the broader goals of reconciliation and equality, substantive equality, real equality. Thirdly, we submit that removing the option of conditional sentencing denies space to Indigenous legal orders and deprives Indigenous offenders of the possibility of a sentence that accords with their conception of justice. Rationally, the unavailability of community-based solutions imposes multifaceted harms and has an amplified and discriminatory effect that both principles of substantive equality and reconciliation demand be foiled. Lastly, the Crown is essentially advocating for a formal equality approach that is inconsistent with this Honourable Court's pronouncements. And I see that my time is up. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you. Michelle Bidolf. Yes. Good afternoon, Chief Justice, Justices. Along with my colleague, David Humphrey, we appear today on behalf of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. In our factum, the CCLA outlines a proposed framework for the adjudication of claims that raise multiple charter rights and urges this court to apply that framework in this case and decide both the Section 7 and Section 15 issues. I'm going to leave that point in our factum for this court to consider and focus my time today on the issue of the use of the maximum sentence for an offence as a proxy for seriousness and its impact on the overbreadth analysis. As this court recognized at paragraph 96 of Friesen, the seriousness of any offence at the time of sentencing is determined by two key factors. The objective gravity of the offense, 
which is indicated by the maximum available sentence and any applicable mandatory minimum sentence, and the subjective gravity of the offense, as indicated by the circumstances of the actual offense committed, as well as the moral blameworthiness of the offender. The seriousness of an offense for the purpose of sentencing is therefore the sum of two factors, objective and subjective gravity. The problem with the provisions in this case is that in order to achieve Parliament's purpose of ensuring that those who commit serious offenses serve their sentences in jail, Parliament used an incomplete equation to define serious offense. Now, before I go further in my argument on this, I want to address Justice Moldaver's question about conditional discharges, absolute discharges, and the question of whether dismissing this appeal would somehow hobble Parliament's ability to create sentencing policy. The position of the CCLA is that the use of maximum sentence to restrict access to other statutory benefits in other contexts may also offend the principle against overbreadth. It depends on the way in which maximum sentence is used in each context. But potential overbreadth in other contexts is not a defense to overbreadth here. If anything, that's a consideration for Section 1, not for Section 7. Now, with respect to whether this argument could hobble Parliament's ability to increase the sentencing tariff, in my submission, it does not. And that's because this court needs to read Friesen and Peranto together. In Friesen, this court held that Parliament's increase in the maximum sentence for an offense is an increased recognition of the objective gravity of that offense, which must be reflected in an increased sentencing range. But as this court recognized in Peranto, a sentencing range is not a straitjacket. Proportionality always takes precedence, and there will be cases where a sentence below the range is appropriate. So Peranto tempers Friesen insofar as it recognizes that even where the range is high, there are almost always situations where sentences below the range are appropriate. But that's interpreting a statutory scheme, Ms. Bidolf. Aren't you, trying, aren't you bootstrapping that a little bit into a constitutional uh, discussion? Certainly, Justice Brown, my only point was that Parliament is still entitled to increase maximum sentences and increase the tariff. Right. Recognizing that a sentence below the range could still, can still be proportionate does not affect Parliament's ability to do that. Isn't it the same yes. analysis that really applies under Section 12 as well, as well Ms. Bidolf, in terms of looking at the, the, uh, both the moral culpability of the offender and the manner in which the offence is committed and the, the, serious, the overall seriousness of the offence? It's the same sort of analysis, and that is constitutional analysis. Yes, I would agree with that, Justice Jamal. Really, we have to remember that these provisions only actually matter in one particular situation. That's where a sentencing judge has examined the objective gravity of an offense, circumstances of the offense and the offender, weighed all aggravating and mitigating factors, and applied all the principles of sentencing, including denunciation, deterrence, and parity, and has then concluded that a fit and proportionate sentence is a conditional one. In that situation, what this provision does is it tells the sentencing judge that they cannot impose that fit and proportionate sentence because the particular offense that person is being sentenced for is one that could have been committed by someone else in a more serious manner. In my submission, the overbreadth of these provisions lies in their application to offenses that cover wide spectrums of conduct. At one end of the spectrum is, in, is very serious conduct, as reflected in the maximum sentence. At the other end of the spectrum is conduct that, while still a criminal offense, is less serious and far less deserving of penalty. The appellate recognizes this as she argues that, in some of these cases, a suspended sentence would be appropriate. However, 
once you accept as a rational proposition that some of the conduct covered by these offenses can appropriately result in a suspended sentence, then what is the rationale for a wholesale exclusion of conditional sentences? In my submission, the appellant's concession necessarily demonstrates the overbreadth of this provision. It does not save it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Carly Fox. Thank you, and good afternoon, Chief Justice and Justices. The Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs advocates for a future where First Nations laws and jurisdictions share equal footing with colonial laws. The Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs does not take a position on the outcome of this appeal, but it asks this court to interpret the issues in a manner that respects and does not unduly limit First Nations laws and perspectives in the Canadian justice system. The crisis affecting First Nations citizens in the criminal justice system has been well documented, discussed in detail today, and is a direct result of the detrimental impacts of colonization. In response, this court in IPLE directed that judicial notice be taken of the history of colonialism, displacement in residential schools, and how that history translates into, among other things, higher levels of incarceration for Aboriginal peoples. The Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs submits that judicial notice must also extend to the impacts of colonialism on First Nations laws and jurisdiction. Prior to European contact, First Nations had their own laws and legal orders. In fact, treaties were entered into by many First Nations and the Crown to reconcile pre-existing First Nations sovereignty with assumed Crown sovereignty. Reconciliation has yet to take place. The Canadian justice system was unilaterally imposed on First Nations with the assertion that colonial law is the only legitimate source of law. Colonial delegitimization de of First Nations legal orders has been disastrous to the fabric of First Nations in Manitoba and elsewhere. 30 years ago, in fact, the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry stated, for Aboriginal people, the essential problem is that the Canadian system of justice is an imposed and foreign system. In order for a society to accept that a justice system is part of its life and its community, it must see the system and experience it as being a positive influence working for that society. Aboriginal people do not. Contrary to the findings of numerous inquiries, the Crown continues to zealously guard its imposed jurisdiction over crime and punishment. The Court of Appeal in this case noted that no consideration was given to the potential effects of the limitations on conditional sentencing provisions at issue on First Nations offenders. The failure to consider the effects on First Nations and First Nations offenders continues to undermine and ignore First Nations laws. Despite concerted attempts to subvert First Nations laws and perspectives and impose the colonial legal system, First Nations laws still exist and are practiced, implemented, and being revitalized by many First Nations today. The application of GLADU factors by sentencing judges is one of the limited means in which First Nations laws and perspectives on justice are considered in the Canadian legal system. While the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs does not wish to conflate restorative justice with First Nations legal responses to harm, or to suggest that First Nations legal responses to crime must only result in a conditional sentence, the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs submits that conditional sentences are a very important means of implementing First Nations laws and perspectives as they may assist in restoring peace and equilibrium. 
When First Nations have input and control over the response to crime in their nations and affecting their citizens, they can reason with and through the resources from their own legal traditions to formulate appropriate responses and solutions. First Nations citizens are more likely to view a sentence as just, where it is crafted in a manner that takes the First Nations laws and perspectives into account. The removal of community-based sanctions perpetuates the discrimination faced by First Nations and their citizens in the Canadian justice system as it constitutes a failure to adequately reflect First Nations laws and perspectives in the sentencing process. The Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs asked this court to cultivate and to protect spaces in Canadian law like the Gladue framework and the availability of conditional sentencing in ways that respect and legitimize First Nations laws and perspectives. Thank you. Thank you very much. Lara Izuka. Thank you, Chief Justice and Justices. Today, on behalf of the Native Women Association of Canada, I make two key points related to the second part of the Section 15 analysis. First, the impugn provision separates Indigenous mothers and children. Many Indigenous kids without mothers end up in foster care and then in jail themselves. This is the child welfare to prison pipeline. Second, the impugn provision deny conditional sentences where they would otherwise be available undermining reconciliation. To my first point, the impugn provision aggravates systemic discrimination because they perpetrate intergenerational family separation cycles for indigenous women. Separating mothers and children is a significant harm for indigenous families. It is always heartbreaking when parents are separated from their children because of incarceration, but it is different for indigenous people. The National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls notes that overwhelming number of incarcerated indigenous women are residential school survivors or have family who are survivors, just like Ms. Sharma. This is not a coincidence. It is a consequence of intergenerational family separation and incarceration pattern that began with the residential school system. When indigenous mothers are sent to jail, their children often go to foster care. The MMIWG inquiry noted that 64% of incarcerated indigenous women are single mothers. The inquiry also notes, makes it clear that this leads many kids down a path to jail themselves. This pattern is what the majority for the courts below refer to as the child welfare to prison pipeline. And the pressure is building. Canada's correctional investigator warns that indigenous women's federal incarceration rates are nearing 50%, whereas they make up only 4% of Canada's population. When sentencing judges like Ms. Sharma cannot apply a conditional sentence, more indigenous women are sent to jail than is necessary. This is not equality for indigenous people. These adverse impact on indigenous women go beyond the individual offender and their families. These impact may impede the very process of reconciliation. This leads me to my second point. The Gladio principle requires crafting sentences that respond to indigenous people's unique and systemic background factors. Reconciliation means honoring indigenous people's right to practice the custom and tradition that are integral to their identities. Before and since colonization, indigenous people developed and applied their own legal systems. These valid laws survive and thrive today. Conditional sentencing gives a judge the opportunity to incorporate indigenous traditional practices where appropriate. 
Indigenous people have an inherent right to practice their legal tradition. The impugned provision undermines this right, thereby impeding reconciliation. Gladio principle do not mean sentencing judges must impose conditional sentence for all Indigenous offenders. This Honorable Court clarified that in, in Gladio and again in Ipili. Reconciliation asks judges to meaningfully consider an indigenous person's legal tradition alongside sentencing principles. The impugned provision wiped this right off the table. Where the impugned provision deny an indigenous person a conditional sentence where it would otherwise be available, this can infringe their right to community-based rehabilitation and healing activities that are integral to their indigenous identities. Canada promises reconciliation and the impugned provision erode indigenous women's trust in that promise. Conditional sentences may be but one tool to counter the cycles of indigenous family separation, but they breathe life into the Gladio principles. Barring any question from this court, these are my submissions. Thank you. Alana Roberts. Good afternoon, Chief Justice and Justices. Tanchi Kiowao, I'm here today with my colleague Connor Bildfeld on representing the intervener, the Ontario Native Women's Association. I will be making three points today. First, in a case alleging a violation of Indigenous people's right to equality under the Charter, the court should consider the impugned laws impacts on Indigenous laws, including Indigenous people's roles under those laws. Second, Section 718.2e of the Criminal Code enables Gladue principles, which allow Indigenous women to fulfill their inherent and sacred roles and responsibilities under Indigenous laws. And third, the impugned provisions interfere with Indigenous women's ability to fulfill their sacred roles and responsibilities under Indigenous laws. This interference has devastating consequences on Indigenous women, their families, and their communities and exacerbates the disadvantage of all Indigenous peoples. Indigenous laws have existed in the territory now known as Canada since time immemorial. Under these laws, Indigenous women have sacred roles and responsibilities, including as mothers, caregivers, the carriers of culture, land defenders, water protectors, and nation builders. Despite deliberate attempts to erase Indigenous laws and the roles of women from the Canadian landscape, these laws continue to be practiced today. These laws must be respected in the Section 15.1 Charter Analysis. Where a violation of an Indigenous person's charter right to equality is alleged, a court should consider the law's impact on the individual's roles under Indigenous laws. Any negative interference with these roles should be recognized as a harm that exacerbates disadvantage. This approach is consistent with the court's recent decision in Fraser which held that courts must examine the full context of a claimant group situation and the actual impact of the impugned law on that situation. This wide lens enables and requires courts to consider Indigenous laws in the equality analysis. Section 718.2e of the Criminal Code provides a critical avenue for upholding Indigenous women's sacred roles by making non-carceral alternatives available. It gives the courts the possibility and the duty to allow Indigenous women to remain in their communities as they serve their sentences wherever possible, where they can continue to fulfill their distinctive roles. Access to non-carceral alternatives like healing lodges, treatment centers, and conditional sentences 
are essential to respecting these roles. And these non-carceral alternatives help keep families together. The impugned provisions interfere with Indigenous women's ability to fulfill their roles by preventing them from remaining in their communities and instead requiring their displacement into prisons. This perpetuates a centuries-long legacy of forced removal and colonial interference with Indigenous ways of living. This has devastating consequences on Indigenous women, their families, their communities, and future generations. The absence of Indigenous women deprives all those around them from benefiting from their roles as mothers, caregivers, the carriers of culture, and many others. The ripple of these facts the ripple effects of these losses can last for generations and can be felt in other areas like the child welfare system. The gravity of this loss is evident in Ms. Sharma's case, as well as the recent Ontario case of George, which was referenced by the respondents. The circumstances of these cases demonstrate difficult experiences, which repeat themselves among Indigenous offenders across the country. The final report from the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls found that many Indigenous women come into contact with the criminal legal system because of acts that directly relate to their survival. By taking conditional sentences off the table in an arbitrary list of circumstances, the impugned provisions enable the continued over-incarceration of Indigenous women, who, which we've recognized today, now make up nearly half of the population of federal prisons. But this is not where Indigenous women belong, and it can no longer be the default. This court has the opportunity to move us forward on the path of reconciliation by recognizing and honoring Indigenous laws and women's roles in the equality analysis, and I urge it to do so. Thank you, Marcy. Thank you. Jessica Orkin. Good afternoon. Uh, I appear today along with my colleague Adriel Weaver on behalf of the David Asper Center for Constitutional Rights, and I hope to speak to four points. The first is in response to Justice Brown and Justice Rowe's questions earlier today regarding whether causation belongs within the stage one or two of the Section 15 analysis. And conceptually, we concede that causation could play a role at stage one as well as stage two. But we submit that it's appropriate for this court to make it clear that causation analysis and inquiries into whether the relationship between the legislation and the adverse impact on a prohibited ground is sufficiently causal, that these inquiries belong at stage two only. We submit that Fraser, paragraphs 70 and 71, go some significant distance already to establish this point. But to the extent that there is any lack of clarity, we submit that the confusion ought to be dispelled. An inquiry into causation does not belong in stage one. Inquiring into causation within stage one will have the structural effect of encouraging formal equality style analysis. This will happen over and over again. And we, I think we can see that it is uh, a tendency from the types of arguments that have been raised in this case. We submit that the importance of substantive equality within the structure of this court's equality jurisprudence compels the conclusion that any inquiry into the sufficiency of causation should be at the second stage. My second point, 
I draw your attention to paragraphs 8 through 12 of the Asper Center's factum, which contain the argument that was graciously referenced by my friend Mr. Aylward. What the Crown describes as the pre-existing historical disadvantage of Indigenous peoples is not separate from and independent of the criminal justice system in general, and it is not separate from and independent of the sentencing process in particular. Discrimination against Indigenous peoples is part, in part caused by the criminal justice system. And in particular, that discrimination is entrenched and exacerbated by the sentencing process, including in the way referenced by Justice Rowe earlier today, in that the sentencing process, the sentencing law, and sentencing options do not take account of Indigenous offenders' unique circumstances and unique needs. And this is a structural problem. The staggering and shameful over-incarceration of Indigenous people in Canada is a symptom and a result of that discrimination. And in these circumstances, Section 15 requires Parliament to implement measures to remedy that discrimination and to promote the equality rights of Indigenous people in the imposition and carrying out of sentence. So, in other words, if conditional sentences didn't exist, there would be an obligation on Parliament to create them. Is that your point? That is not my point, Justice Rowe. Uh, my point is, is slightly different than that. The, the uh, Parliament chose to enact conditional sentences and chose to enact GLAD the GLADU framework in 718.2 sub E. That was Parliament's choice, and that parliamentary choice has, a res has responded to a constitutional imperative. And it's a partial response, and no one suggests that it has been complete in, in, in uh, overcoming the substantive inequality faced by Indigenous people, but it is an important response. It was Parliament's choice. Uh, Parliament could make a different choice, and if Parliament had removed conditional sentences now for, as, as an available option and chosen to do something else in their stead to remedy and to address the substantive inequality, we would be having a different discussion about Section 15. And that analysis would be happening, depending on the policy choice made by Parliament, it could be happening under either Section 15, the second stage, or under a Section 1 analysis. The challenge here is that Parliament has not attempted to remedy that absence in, in what it has done here. And so I would say, and this, this actually was part of my third point, but I'll, I'll jump to it. It isn't for us to say what Parliament could or ought to have done, had it in this case not acted unconstitutionally. There is scope for ample policy choices by Parliament, including to make sentencing more onerous and to make sentencing results uh, more restrictive. But it has to act within the bounds of its constitutional obligations. And Justice Rowe, I draw your attention to, to the comment that you made at paragraph 145 of Chohan, that when a statutory provision gives effect to a constitutional right, there is nothing strange about constitutional scrutiny of amendments to that statute. This doesn't constitutionalize the existing statute, but rather looks at whether the repeal or modification gives rise to unconstitutional effects. And in this case, the right in question is the Section 15 right of Indigenous offenders to substantive equality before and under the law. Thank you. Thank you. Emily Taman. Good afternoon, uh, Chief Justice and Justices of the Court. I act for the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies, an organization whose core mission is to advocate on behalf of some of the most marginalized and systemically oppressed members of our society criminalized and incarcerated women. 
In the case of Indigenous women like the respondent, intersecting marginalizations, including gender, indigeneity, family status, and economic precarity, give rise to a complex set of challenges which contribute to their increased likelihood of trauma, mental health conditions, family separation, criminalization, and imprisonment. Our submission to the court in this appeal, as set out in our factum, asks the court to consider and elaborate upon the relationship between Section 7 and Section 15 of the Charter in the context of penal legislation. We're specifically advocating for an approach to Section 7, uh, a modified approach to Section 7, when a possibility of loss of liberty arises within a discriminatory context. It's somewhat surprising that this court's Section 15 jurisprudence in relation to penal legislation is relatively sparse, despite its <clears throat> repeated recognition of systemic discrimination against Indigenous people in criminal justice institutions. Constitutional challenges to the criminal code <clears throat> and related legislation have tended more often to be resolved pursuant to Section 7 or Section 12, with Section 15 either not being raised by the claimant or not being dealt with by the court, as was noted uh, by the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Indeed, seminal cases in which this court has articulated the urgency of addressing systemic inequality in criminal justice institutions, such as Williams, Ippoli, and even Gladue itself, were not Section 15 cases. And this may be in part because, as many of the exchanges today have shown, the existing Section 15 framework is ill-suited to application in the context of criminal law and imposes uh, what we would submit as an unduly onerous burden on rights claimants who already face a multitude of barriers to access to justice. Can, this I, just, uh, can I interrupt for a minute, please, Ms. Stanton? I'm sorry yes. to bother you with this, but it's been bothering me a little bit throughout the hearing. You know, drug dealers, and it's well documented, choose their victims carefully. And I think it's well documented that they look for vulnerable people who are marginalized, who are out of money, who are looking in desperate situations, and they use them as the targets because they are, you know, they're desperate. And, and I, I worry, and tell me that you think I may be totally wrong, but I worry if these drug dealers get wind of the fact that the indigenous women, that indigenous women will likely get conditional sentences and not have to go to jail, that they will, we will be making them even greater targets to organize crime and to the drug dealers as the targets that they will choose to take trips down south and so on to make fast money. Now, that may be very weird to you, it may be right out of the blue, but speaking for myself, I worry about that because these people will prey on not just the most vulnerable, but you will make Indigenous people a real good target because the drug dealers will be able to say, don't worry, you'll get a conditional sentence. You won't have to go to jail. Well, no, I, I don't think that's a, a crazy idea. And I, and I think, in fact, it, it recognizes um, the extent to which um, Indigenous women in particular are, are already vulnerable, vulnerable, and that vulnerability is already being preyed on, as was the case here with Ms. Sharma, uh, who found herself in, in such a precarious situation that she felt she was left with no choice. And, and I would put it to you, Justice Muldaver, that I don't think, um, you know, these drug dealers that you're referring to really care what the consequences are for the people that they target to do this work. I, I don't think that we can assume 
that, you know, the question of whether Ms. Sharma was likely to receive a conditional sentence or a carceral sentence or some other disposition if caught was a likely preoccupation for this person. And so I'm not sure that, you know, to, to uh, obviate or to, to obscure a new potential vulnerability, um, we should allow the existing vulnerability um, to be further impacted by imposing a custodial sentence um, in the circumstances. Um, but, but I do think your question certainly does recognize the extent to which there are vulnerabilities on many levels. Um, I would simply say, uh, given the passage of time, <laughs> that uh, in our view, uh, a streamlined approach to, to the question of whether there's a discriminatory context is appropriate, uh, and that these issues should continue to be resolved uh, as much as possible under Section 7, but allowing for and recognizing uh, the discriminatory context in which the issue arises. Thank you very much. Thank you. Emily Young. Good afternoon, Chief Justice and Justices of the Court. The John Howard Society of Canada will focus on two aspects of the submissions it made in its factum. First, we will speak to the conditional sentence as a distinct sentencing tool that can serve multiple purposes and is uniquely placed to mitigate the harms of incarceration. We will highlight some cases in which judges have imposed conditional sentences on offenders where those sentences would not have been available before the Court of Appeals decision in this case. Second, we will comment briefly on how the appellant's approach to the first step of the Section 15 analysis improperly shifts the focus away from the challenged law's effects on the claimant and claimant group, being Ms. Sharma and Indigenous women. Um, and, and we think and would submit that this follows from and builds on Ms. Orkin's uh, submission that the appellant's arguments harken back to a formal equality analysis. As you've heard, conditional sentences can be imposed for serious crimes. They include punitive conditions that restrict the offender's liberty and impose a real threat of incarceration on breach. So they can be used in cases where denunciation and deterrence are important sentencing principles. But conditional sentences are not limited to these sorts of liberty restrictions. They permit courts to impose conditions that promote rehabilitative and restorative objectives, including attendance at treatment programs, counseling, community service, and educational programs. As a result, this court has observed in Prue that conditional sentences tend to be more effective than incarceration in promoting rehabilitation. They're also a particularly effective means of achieving appropriate individualized sentences because they are a flexible tool that can be tailored to the particular circumstances of the offender. This is something that courts across Canada have recognized and we address in our factum starting at paragraph 10. For example, in the Queen and Wapoose, uh, an Ontario Superior Court decision that is listed in Appendix A to our factum, an Indigenous man was sentenced to a 12-month conditional sentence after he pleaded guilty to fraud over 5,000 for signing checks he knew to be fraudulent. At the time of sentencing, Mr. Wapoose, a member of Neskintaga First Nation, was a 64-year-old residential school survivor who suffered from serious health issues that required him to go to a hospital for dialysis three times per week. In addition to significant liberty restrictions, the terms of his conditional sentence included restitution, counseling at a culturally appropriate organization, attending financial literacy programs offered by Nishinaabe ASCII Legal Services, and community service. This sentence was unavailable before the Court of Appeals decision in this case. 
at least 30 offenders in Ontario have served sentences in the community instead of in jail, receiving what sentencing judges found to be more appropriate sentences, more conducive to rehabilitation as a result of the Court of Appeals decision in this case. In Appendix A to our factum, we've listed 25 of those that are first instance decisions. And we would note uh, to close this aspect of our submissions that that number 30 only includes reported decisions citing the Court of Appeals decision in this case, along with the George case that you heard about earlier today from the respondent. There are no doubt others who have been spared incarceration, but not spared appropriate punishment as a result of the Court of Appeals decision. Briefly on to Section 15. This court has emphatically stated, and it's not controversial, that Section 15 protects substantive and not formal equality. Despite this, aspects of the appellant's position in this case reflect a disguised formal equality analysis. Specifically, the appellant states that the challenged provisions must create a distinction on their own and viewed in isolation. And this can be seen at, at paragraph 34 of the appellant's factum. According to the appellant, the only possible distinction created by the challenged provisions is between those convicted of offenses punishable by less than 14 years and those convicted of offenses punishable by 14 years or more. In other words, because the law treats likes alike, offenders who have committed the same offense, there can be no race-based distinction. On that reasoning, we say the only way this court could find a distinction is if the law actually said something like Indigenous offenders cannot receive a conditional sentence. This can't be the case on the court's jurisprudence. If it were, it would be impossible to ever bring a discrimination claim based on adverse effects. It would be like ignoring the effects of an aerobic fitness standard on women or the lack of funding for sign language interpretation in the provision of health services on deaf individuals. We would urge the court not to take the appellant's in invitation to collapse the first step of the Section 15 test into formal equality analysis. Thank you very much. Thank you. Any reply, uh, Ms. Conroy? Thank you, Chief Justice. Uh, the Crown has no substantive reply, except just to point the court, uh, based on a question from Justice Moldaver before, about what the exact wording was when, uh, with the enactment in 1996 of the conditional sentence provision. And we just wanted to point out that that exact wording can be found in our condensed book. The appellant's condensed book behind tab two has, uh, will show you exactly as the legislation looked when it was enacted in 1996. And in the tabs that follow in our book, uh, you can see the legislation as it was amended uh, through each of the amendments that, that took place in 1997, in, in 2007, and, and again in, in 2012. Thank you, thank very, you much. very much. Thank you. I thank all the attorneys for their submissions. The court will take the case under advisement and the court is adjourned till tomorrow morning, 9.30. Thank you.